Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Greetings, homosexuals and fellow queers, and those of you who happen to just be listening to this for some reason that's not queer-related. Guess what? It's almost Pride Month. Pride is right around the fucking corner, and we want to give you all some material uh, to dig into as you enter your glorious Pride Month of June. We want you to have something that you can pop your headphones on and be listening to as you transition into this very gay time. Uh, and, and I, for one, Troy, I mean, I fucking love Pride. I am counting down to it for weeks prior. I go to all kinds of fucking events. What about you? What do you think about Pride? <laughs> Why are you hitting me with that right off the bat, Roger? Uh, I think you know the answer to that. You do, you do. Um, and now you're going to make me s- seem like the terrible gay to all of our listeners because while I I, I appreciate the concept, um, the the um, the message behind what Pride is, I personally, uh, the last time I went to a Pride event, Roger, and this is the God honest truth, was with you. Uh, way back in what 2017 when I was in Cleveland when we met the first time and and it just happened to be Pride Weekend and you took me I it just I'm not I, it just has never really appealed to me and again I'm not saying that I don't understand what it stands for I completely do I'm talking about like the the events the execution of the events kind of how corporate is it has become is not for me but I will definitely sit back in the month of June and watch some fucking gay ass films particularly gay horror films if there's any out there which surprise there is there is there's a few of them there's a couple of them to help you to bring in your pride month properly and we're going to be touching on a few of those titles well by we i mean you troy you are going to be taking the reins for the rest of the month of june I am, I am, and I can't say that the the rest of the films that are covered for the month of june are, are particularly queer or gay themed, but there are definitely elements in a few of them that we could pull out and discuss. But I I feel like what better way to kind of kick off Pride Month than to cover a film that is perhaps, Roger, one of the gayest, in-your-face gayest films in the very best way possible to come out in the last 20 years, I would say since Hell Bent. Oh, I mean, this movie that we're going to talk about today is, is super fucking gay. Um, and it's the right time, I think, to talk about it because the, the creators behind this project are kind of having this great, awesome resurgence, extra pop of attention on a larger scale, it's seeming, uh, right now as, as their new title, St. Drogo, is starting to receive a lot of attention. And so I think it's really a, a great time to look back, seeing that you and I have both been lucky enough to see St. Drogo, look back on their initial work and just see how much these individuals have grown. Because this is not a review for St. Drogo, but I do need to acknowledge that the word of the, the review, the word of the day for me is growth. Growth, growth, growth. And to see that as a filmmaker, to see other filmmakers expand upon their craft in such significant ways is inspiring 
It is something that I feel like every indie filmmaker should strive for. Like I personally, and I've talked about this before, I want each of my films to be better than the one that that came before it. And for the most part, I feel like I, I, I've successfully done that. Like if you watch my three films in a row, Party Night, Mrs. Claus, Teacher Shortage, my goal was to grow, to learn new things, to apply them to each film to make it better than the next. I think that's what you should want to do as a filmmaker. So many indie filmmakers, though, don't see that as a priority. They they are fine churning out the same thing over and over again, and it's more about quantity than it is quality. And when I first heard these guys were doing St. Drogo, uh, the, um, the kind of description that they gave at the very beginning before filming even began or whatever, and it was, it was very much, they were comparing it to like a, a like folk horror, like seventies folk horror. I was instantly intrigued, but also in the same time I was like, wait, okay. So you guys just did this extremely campy, 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 campy slasher, giallo, uh, inspired film. But now you're going to do this 70s folk horror? How is this going to work? And I don't want to say I was skeptical. My interest was piqued about how this was going to turn out. And yes, and by the guys, we are specifically talking about Michael J. Ahern, uh, Brandon Paris, who both have been guests on the podcast in the past, and Ryan Miller, who got uh, came on board this time as the director. Uh, they were kind enough to to let us have a, a sneak peek at St. Drogo because it recently um, debuted at the Salem Horror Film Festival to rave reviews. And I got to say, first of all, guys, thank you so much for allowing us to to be among the first to view your film because we know, I, I know as a filmmaker, I take who sees my film early on very seriously. So I, I really appreciate you letting us watch it. And second of all, you knocked it out of the park and Roger is completely correct when he uses the word growth not that death drop gorgeous was like this mess that that needed <laughs> needed to be stepped up upon no 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 we're not saying that but like from a visual standpoint from um, a storytelling standpoint i all i can describe saint drogo as guys and we're not going to spoil anything don't worry is it's, it's it's an experience it's an experience and i know that's a, a, a kind of a broad term to use. Any film should be an experience, but I feel like this one really affected me in a way that I can't remember another film doing mainly because it is a very, while it's a very queer story, the, the, the story focuses on a gay couple who are going through relationship turmoil and, and whatnot. It all felt so relatable. I was literally at the end of the movie, I would say my jaw was probably on my, my desk from from this film i it was an experience and it was an experience that really i i, I guess i got to raise my glass to these guys because they exceeded all expectations with saint drogo i cannot wait for it to get out there and i think it was very smart of them to go the route they did with saint drogo because guys everything about saint drogo is so different than death drop gorgeous if if you like the campiness of Death Drop, Death Drop Gorgeous, the over-the-top performances, the hammy performances, you're not getting this with with Saint Drogo. You are getting a very serious film. Um, the tone is super serious, but the film manages to create this this atmosphere that, like I said, it seeps into you and it becomes an experience. And by the the final ten minutes of the film, oh my God, Roger, I was really, <laughs> I was crushed. I was crushed. It's. So that's my, I, that's all I want to say because I don't want to spoil too much of it. Now, what do you think, Roger? Am I off base? Do you agree? You know, I, I went into St. Drogo with high expectations because like the, the, 
everything they had shared up to that point was very impressive. Like, I remember when they dropped that trailer and you and I were like, oh, God, like, holy shit, this looks phenomenal. Um, and, and it's not like, you know, su- there's times where you support your friends and you're like, go get them. And you're like, you guys, go make your art. And then there's other times where you have friends who are making something that you're like, holy fuck, this is legitimately just beyond impressive. And like, I mean, I know we know a few, we know a few fellow filmmakers who are making things right now that I think are surpassing expectations. And I would put these boys on the top of the list. I love films a la like a Messiah of Evil, a like <laughs> like a, like a uh, like seaside like lonely townscape. Uh, with like a melancholy vibe and something's brewing beneath the surface and you're realizing that, you know, all kinds of people are in on it. Like, I love that kind of setup. You see that from an array of, of classic films. And this manages to take that kind of basic premise and morph into something completely unexpected and visually sumptuous. And like, it just across the board, they outdid my expectations so much more than I could have possibly anticipated. So, I mean... I, even my partner, who I had the joy of watching it with, who is not a horror fan and supports me out of the, the kindness of his heart, nothing more. Um, <laughs> he watched this movie, and a few days later, he said to me, he's like, I'm thinking about that movie. He's like, I, I told my brother, my straight heterosexual brother about it. He's intrigued. And he's like, and I just, I'm still thinking about it. And that's, uh, he's, I'm more impressed now than I was upon viewing it because I can't get it out of my head. And that right there is the sign of just true cinematic craftsmanship. I mean, uh, I can't wait to see what they do next. Like, if that's the growth from one film to another, holy balogna. Like, I can't even imagine. Give these boys a couple million dollars and let them fucking run with it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't blame Gustavo for saying he thought about the film days after because so did i um that that final those final moments and you know exactly what i'm talking about are pretty heart-wrenching to watch and you know guys if you are in the camp that maybe did not like death drop gorgeous for some reason maybe it was too campy for you too hammy too in your face I really cannot wait for you to see this one because it's the total antithesis of Death Drop Gorgeous. And for filmmakers to do that, to come out of the gate with their second film and create something so tonally different, so elevated, is quite impressive. These these guys are talented. They're definitely ones to, to watch out for. And I love the fact that they are just embracing the queerness of their material. And because you don't have, and this is something else Roger, I've brought up many times is, is even though there seems to be a wide, wide audience of, of gay horror fans and, and gay filmmakers, you don't see a lot of these gay filmmakers making gay films. So I got to applaud these guys for just embracing it and going full force with, with the gay, the gaiety, because again, it rings true. The film is very realistic. I know we had uh, Mike, Mike. Ahern on. And when we had him on way back on episode, uh, I don't remember what it was, but we did the house of the devil. And, you know, he, he chose that. And, you know, he talked about, he loved films that were like a slow bird. And one of the reasons why he liked house of the devil was because it was a slow bird. If you haven't checked that episode out, go back and listen to it. But now it makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense. You can see like the inspiration of Ty West slow burn style in St. Drogo. It's it's stunning. It's all I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. It's stunning. We're not here to we're not here to talk about St. Drogo. We are here to talk about their first film that I had the pleasure of. I feel like I have a strong connection to this film, maybe a little bit more than some other people because it was a film that they submitted to our very first Houston Horror Film Festival 
back in 2020 when we were supposed to have our first live event. And we all know how that turned out. COVID happened. And so we ended up having to have a virtual festival and we had an award ceremony that we got really cool people to present awards through this virtual award ceremony. But they had submitted Death Drop Gorgeous and they ended up winning two awards from the Houston Horror Film Festival. And they submitted it. I mean, I think they feel like they submitted it like right when we first started um, accepting submissions. I'm assuming we probably had to be one of the first festivals they submitted it to. So I feel a connection to this film because I've I've seen it probably long before anybody else. And I've just been in awe to watch how it's just taken off. And fuck, when it was announced it was going to be on Shutter, I was fucking thrilled because it's a film, a horror filmmaker to me. Fucking if Mrs. Claus ever got on Shutter, it's not going to. But if it did, I would my little gay heart would explode. That that to me is like the pinnacle of what I want. And I know it sounds silly, but like, goddamn. Oh my god, the, watching their journey has been thrilling because like you and I both have been bystanders to these guys since before the film was completed, and so that's been super excited. Like, or at least you know, I think it was still in editing. At least when I met them on social media. Like the film wasn't making the rounds yet, but the the promotional materials were. And so seeing this coming about, like, I'm going to say it right now. These guys are a major, major reason why I even started pursuing my own queer cinema. Like, truthfully, I was scared of it. I had scripts. I started the script for me back in like 2017. Like, and I have sat on it and sat on it. And, you know, with Rebirth, I, I had a gay focal character, but it was a gay character existing in a relatively other than that cisgendered world you know uh, i was bleeding elements of queer into my work but i i never went full gay <laughs> i never went full full gay with my cinema and seeing like the the fact that these guys just said fuck it like let's take your conventional rules and all that nonsense and say go fuck yourselves we're going to make something that is true to us and true to the world that we exist in and incorporates the people that we interact with and the personalities that we interact with on a daily basis within the queer culture. I think that they really leaned into their strengths with this project. And because of that, despite being their first project as a team, the outcome is something that I can only describe in my words, I would say is completely charismatic there is a charm to this film that even in seeing the growth that came from it, even on a standalone, to be the first project to come from a group of indie filmmakers, they clearly had an understanding of what they were working towards, and they had a very strong vision in mind from beginning to end, and it really is something that surpasses, I think, the expectations that we normally set for low-budget independent films. This film highly surpasses those expectations. Yes. And that's the, an important key element to point out that this is a low budget affair, a low budget affair. They definitely made the most of the budget they were working with. And, and this is one of those projects that I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it took them a long time to film this. This was filmed over a course of a long period of time, like on weekends and stuff. It wasn't a traditional film shoot, which makes it even more impressive that it came out so cohesively. I also like the fact that they, they in both of their films, uh, they kind of embrace this element of like regional horror. Death Drop Gorgeous has Providence, Rhode Island as the setting, and it's it's very prominent setting in the film. And then with St. Drogo, they have Provincetown as a, as a major like 
almost character in the film. So they're kind of embracing the New England regional style. And it, it really is uh, cool and interesting to see that the fact that they are New England based filmmakers, that they're allowing that to influence their style and their vision. But I think we should get into Death Drop Gorgeous because there's going to be a lot we want to say about it. Guys, if you've not seen this film, it is on Shudder. Uh, I know it's on 2B2 now, but Shudder is, is, was its big you know, streaming premiere, which was awesome. Uh, and it's directed by Mike Ahern, Brandon Paris. And this one is, the, the third director is um, Christopher Dalpy, who is, actually plays Brian in the film. Actually, all of the, char- all of the directors act in the film. Yeah, I, I, should we get into it? Oh, please, I'm chomping at the bit. Okay, so the opening to Death Drop Gorgeous reminded me a lot of like the opening murder of Sleepaway Camp 3, which ironically will be our next review. I'm doing that with the ever wonderful Chris Moore as a as a guest co-host because you will be off filming your own gaiety with meat. The film opens with a young gay man walking down the, the dark streets of Providence, and he's on an, a very much a grinder like app, but it's called Pounder. Which I think I like Pounder better than Grinder. I love the fist like punching it. <laughs> like it's the logo is so well designed. It's truly an impressive start to the film is this logo for Pounder. <laughs> well, I feel like Pounder definitely gives you more of an indication of what you're in for than Grinder, right? Oh, I mean, this is some hard sex that these people are looking for, and right? I'm here for it. I'm here for it. <laughs> But you also get like a little inkling that this this young gay guy might be trouble because he goes into the bar, which we find out is the outhouse, um, and is immediately escorted out by the bouncer. Uh, and as he's walking down, he, he he gets a message from a, a guy on the Pounder app who wants to meet him to, for PNP party and play for those of for those straights that might not know some of the lingo. We're gonna have to, I think, interpret it for them, Roger. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, he goes and meets up with this stranger in a car that's parked in the alley and gets in the car and the stranger offers him right away some cocaine. He immediately sniffs it and is trying to make small talk with this driver who is unknown to us. And all of a sudden his nose starts bleeding. So the driver wipes the blood off his nose. Uh, The kid realizes what's going on. He gets out of the car. And I, one thing I want to say about some of the, there are some really cool shots in this film. Like cinematography is pretty is pretty great at times, and this is like the first shot that I think is really stellar. It's when the kid gets out of the car and he f- goes to the front of the car and falls on the ground, and you just have this wide shot of the car part backed against the wall with the headlights and this kid like stumbling and falling to the ground, and then the the stranger gets out and you see his black boots, walks up to the kid, black gloves. So this is the first indication that the film is also very much Jalo inspired takes out a screwdriver and proceeds to stab the shit out of this kid. And it's pretty brutal. There's that one shot where he like, when he, after he stabs the kid, he's like twisting it around for like what seems like a minute, just grinding it in his back. It's pretty, it's pretty cringe inducing. And he flips the kid over and you get the very colorful title card, death drop gorgeous. You know, as far as openings go, like, you know, the first thing that really popped to me, in revisiting this film is just how much like this opening sequence in the terms of in an opening sequence in a slasher, the opening kill, how much this one really hits. I mean, they do a great job establishing the world these characters live in. You do get this kind of just like rough 
like <laughs> bruised. You notice he has like a bruised face. He's got like a bruised eye, and he d- he's definitely like like a you know a, a kind of like a druggie. I mean, he's like waddling down the street. He's on Pounder looking to P and P. I I love that they touched on that because that is such an element of queer culture, and it's not like the focus by any means. But they do touch on you know drug usage within the community, and so for that to be like the opening beat for this felt very relevant and very of the times and incorporating the app the way they did. I mean, every gay and their brother I know is fucking on a goddamn, all five of, all 33 of the apps. There's like, let's be real. There's more and more all the time. Hornet and uh, fucking manhunt. <laughs> like, you know, so it just felt so relevant. And and the timing of it, like some openings are feel too quick. Some openings feel too rushed. Some openings feel like they drag on. I mean, this is such a perfectly paced opening. And when you get that shot where it, it like glides down the side of the building to reveal the headlights perfectly centered. Like, yes, you're absolutely right. There are some cinematic shots in this film that again, completely surpass my expectations of what I would anticipate an indie with this budget would pull off. So like kudos to them for just setting up such a great moody, intense opening sequence. Like as soon as you realize, like he looks back in the car and there's this fucking tank with all these tubes coming out of it. Like what the fuck did this kid just snort? When it starts to build up there, like, it, it is genuinely just a dark and unsettling and creepy opening kill. And you're right, when you see the screwdriver going in and out, the meat collecting on it, like, the gore in this film, even on an indie level, again, and they really managed to create, like, this pulpy, chunky, meaty gore. It's not just, like, bloody syrup. It's chunky, and there's always, like, shards of flesh and everything. And, God, it just it makes your skin crawl. They really do a great job with this opening and beyond. The opening, yeah, it's quick. It's It gets to the point, and it's, it's, it's brutal. I mean, that's all you can ask for from an opening scene. I also think these guys are very deliberate with the script in making statements about gay culture, obviously. And one of the prominent things in gay culture is definitely drug use, drug abuse among, among gay men. And, you know, I think that I'm wondering if this opening scene, although it did remind me of sleepaway camp three, when Angela gives that bitchy news reporter comment to, to snort for, for drugs or for cocaine. I'm wondering if they were also with this opening scene, having him snort something, we're kind of making a statement about like, Hey, you know, just willy nilly random drug use with strangers can be pretty damn dangerous because there are a lot of elements in this film where I feel like they are definitely making a statement about the gay community. And I found it very interesting that they open the film with this particular death scene where a, a, a young gay, like you said, drug addict, that's how he's presented. He just randomly gets in a car and, and snorts the first thing that's offered to him without any consideration of who this person is, what he's snorting. And it, it leads to his demise. And I think it was very, in my mind, it's a very deliberate opening scene. Um, they, they know exactly what they're doing in terms of statements that they want to make about the gay scene and gay culture. Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely very gay relevant, but it's something that I feel like the right, at least progressive minded uh, straight person could sit down and still have a hell of a good time with it. I mean, there's definitely moments of like, uh, penises and, <laughs> and nude men and i mean it's gay i mean it's gay but i still think there's such like a um again a charisma to this film it kind of sucks you in regardless like it almost just becomes part of the world that they're living in 
it's gay, but it also is not like I don't think there's anything in this film that is going to make. How, how am I going to phrase this? Like a, str- a straight person can can watch this film, and there's nothing like overtly like in your face gay in terms of like sex, like actual sex happening on screen or whatnot or being simulated. Besides the glory hole scene, we will get there. But uh, I feel like it, it, because of the way everything is presented, it's a very accessible film to people outside the the queer community. But after this opening scene, we get introduced to Dwayne, who gets out of like an Uber and he immediately checks the Pounder app. There are definitely the guys in this film are obsessed with the gay app, which is is real. I mean, we all know that. If you've been among a group of gay men, you probably know the grinder notification sound, right? But Dwayne checks his 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 Pounder app and he had messaged this guy. I can't the screen name is something like Mask for something and the guy immediately responds and says not my type Dwayne goes into the bar and he's introduced to tragedy the first of many drag queens that we encounter that work at this outhouse bar what do you think of tragedy and what do you think of Wayne because Wayne ultimately ends up being our I would say our main protagonist he's the he's the final boy I think that tragedy is a motherfucking icon, to be honest. I think that the tragedy goes places in this film that I didn't anticipate, and I'm I'm thrilled that she did. I'm thrilled that they let her. I'm not sure how much of that was tragedy. I'm thinking some of it had to be, because she's she's bringing a whole other thing to this film that, that nobody else is, and I'm just, I'm all about it. I mean, like, it's so specific but and so dead on and 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 the execution in the little bit of dialogue she has um is so perfect but it's a lot of it's just like her her body language her facial expressions and as the movie goes on tragedy gets better and better i mean she's one of my favorite parts of the film and i think i think wayne is dwayne is uh truthfully extremely charming he's adorable um there's a, a vulnerability i think that he brings with some of like what they explore with his character and what he's gone through. And I think that, that, that reads really um, natural with his performance. Like I, I buy into some of his more vulnerable moments, which I get, again, for an indie on this, like um, on this level, I, I often feel like those are the moments that struggle the most. And I, I actually get pretty sucked into some of his, uh, a little more personal uh, moments of dialogue that he has, like with especially with like Brian coming up here soon, that really let him kind of just explore. I think what a lot of us have gone through as as queer men. He talks about a breakup, finding out that his ex had been with another man, losing everything to it, and and just the way he handles it and internalizes it. And at times projects it as well. I think it's really well played and really well written too. I've got to say that his character and just how he's written into the script and the journey he's going through trying to reestablish himself in his hometown. I mean, tail between the legs, you know, like it's got to be a rough journey for him. And I think that translates really well. I like the fact that they don't make him like this woe is me character, right? He gets back to town and he knows exactly what he needs to do. He needs to move on with his life. He goes to the bar that he used to work at, the outhouse, and he goes right into uh, uh, Tony Two Fingers' office to ask for his job back. But yes, I want to backtrack and say tragedy. Fucking love tragedy. Uh, the vibe that she serves throughout this film is, like you said, so different than every everyone else around her, but it fucking works. It works. There's this deadpan seriousness to this character who's surrounded by larger than life characters and, and tragedy is always very mellow, 
nothing affects her. I, I like this moment where he first walks in the bar and she's just kind of sweeping haphazardly. And then she sees him and does this little very slow curtsy to him. I mean, her character has all these little quirks and yeah, probably about three lines of dialogue the entire film, but actually ends up being one of the most memorable parts of the film, honestly. But yeah, Dwayne goes into the office to ask for his job back and we get introduced to the bar owner, Tony Two Fingers, who's played by Brandon Paris, one of the directors who definitely I I love seeing him like this. He's just embracing that larger than life New England accent. He's loud. He's obnoxious. He's sweaty. Like he's like you can just picture this guy really would own an establishment like this and really like be as big of an asshole as he is. And he has this like (laughs) he has this pup. That, that is in his office the entire film. And this pup actually becomes a pretty important part of the, the film later on. But like, it's just so random. And when I first saw it, I'm like, what the hell? But uh, it just lets you know right away the type of campiness that they're going for with this film. Uh, and Tony Two Fingers, the character, obnoxious. Dwayne asks for his job back, and the first thing he does is throw him a bag of cocaine and be like, "Hey, you can, you can sell this for me." And Dwayne's like, "No, no, 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 I can't do that." And Tony Two Fingers agrees to give him Tuesday nights back, which is karaoke night. I really love that. Well, first, I love that Brandon Paris is even with that gigantic, massive, uh, overhanging, billowing gut, still manages to be extremely attractive. <laughs> like I gotta give the guy credit, even at his slimiest, greasiest. I mean, God, beautiful to look at. Good, good for you, Brandon. Um, but I also I love that his like in his delivery, he never delivers a line of dialogue that isn't a yell or a, like a shriek, <laughs> a shriek at somebody. Like he's he is just yelling at people the entire time. But because of the kind of character character that he's um really channeling here i mean like he's digging his fingers into it he takes this and he runs with it and and like yes you're absolutely right like i'm sure this is character this character has to be based off of very specific people people that we as gay men have seen in many a cd dive bar before like you know like um it, it's a really dead-on uh interpretation of just a, a greasy slimy like low class kind of piece of shit that would run this kind of establishment i really like what he does with the character i he has so much fun with it um and but then there's also like these strange sensitive moments for the character that come up here too that i think are my favorite moments uh for him specifically so he plays it really well he has a lot of fun with the role yeah it's great it it, it adds so much to the film believable i mean i think you know growing up i'm thinking like you know in my hometown we had a couple gay bars and you always kind of knew the owner of the gay bar because he was the at any given time the sleaziest guy in the bar trying to sleep with all the the young kids that were in there or whatnot and it just I, so i think it does ring true on that level this is definitely the type of person that would run this establishment and i love the fact that because every i'm sorry roger every gay bar owner that i've known or have been acquainted with it's very well known that they sleep with like literally all their employees and i love the fact that that, oh, that absolutely oh yeah oh yeah there's and i love the fact that that is mentioned numerous times in this film that tony two fingers has slept with pretty much everybody in in the bar down, down to the gold chain that he's wearing i'm gonna say like he, down to the fucking chain like yeah that's the exact chain that every sh- shitty dive bar gay man owns and it's it just it's very detailed I, I really like his performance yeah i do too so so Dwayne gets his job back at 
the outhouse on Tuesday evenings, which is karaoke night. Yay. And at his apartment that that day, right after getting the job back, he um, is talking to his roommate, Brian, played by Christopher Dalpy, one of the directors of the film. And Brian is a handful. I have grown to really, really, really like the Brian character quite a bit, Roger. And I, if I'm going to admit something, I'm going to say when I first watched this movie, the Brian character annoyed the hell out of me. It's probably like my least favorite part of the film. But upon multiple viewings, I find the Brian character very endearing. And actually, his performance is quite great. He has a lot of little quirks that really work in the moment and really come off as supernatural. Like, I love his interaction later on in the film with Gloria Hole, who we'll talk about. But even his moments with Dwayne as a friend, they're, they're endearing because we all, I think, know someone like this. Because Brian's the type of person that um, when Dwayne is telling him something or starts talking about himself if Dwayne's talking about something good that happens to him Brian starts to space off or get on his phone and Dwayne has to make little like comments or little gestures to wheel Brian back into the conversation and Brian is a lot of times he's like oh yes yes Dwayne that's that's very good for you. Like he you, he's just doing it just because he knows that Dwayne expects a response. But I will tell you, Brian's character now, I absolutely adore the character quite a bit. Honestly, it just took a few viewings to warm up to him. You know, for me as a gay who grew up in theater, um, like I know I know that character. I know Brian very well. And many people, I've been that person. I I do reference. Alphaba and Galinda on a regular basis, um, uh, casually, you know, and, and it's just his, his devotion to the performance of it all, um, and his desire to, to seek fame and even like, like the details of his voicemail where he's like actor, performer, and, uh, social media, like social he's just something like influencer, influencer. <laughs> social media influencer. like, yeah, absolutely. Like I know that person, it's a very intentional character and I think he is phenomenal in the role. So yeah, I clicked with him right away, but just because, again, I, I grew up with, I think, a lot more of that around me and I got exactly what he was going for with it. I'm happy, though, to hear that you are in love with this performance as well. No, I am. I Seriously, I, it's grown on me quite a bit. I've watched this film, I've watched this film, Roger, four times in the last two days and it grows on me more and more each time I see it. I'm talking about the film in general, but... Brian and and yeah, the film in general grows on me. It's it's a film that I find myself liking more and more each time I watch it, uh, and I can see it quickly becoming like a comfort film for me um, because there's so many elements of the film that I just truly find great and entertaining. And you know that first viewing of the film, you know, uh, it, it's it is kind of a I don't want to say it's a like a brash film, but it do, there's moments where it does kind of it's in your face with all of the the elements of it. So upon first viewing you're bombarded with all of these visuals and dance numbers and everything. And you're trying to keep the characters straight because that was another thing. A couple like the first viewing, a couple of the, the, like the, the drag Queens were hard to tell apart, but now upon multiple viewings, everything is just melted together for me. And I actually, I really, really enjoy this film quite a bit. And Brian now is a big part of it. He is, definitely a endearing character i don't and you know even though he does have moments with wayne i'm gonna say i'm sorry if i i'm gonna put this out there right now 
because I know I'm going to do it and I don't want to be called out. I apologize, listeners, if I say Wayne instead of Dwayne. The character's name is Dwayne. However, the actor that plays him is Wayne Gonzalez. We've had him on for It Follows episode. So I may say, if I if you hear me say Wayne, I mean Dwayne. I apologize. That, that wasn't fair of them to do that to us. <laughs> I know. Why didn't you just, guys, writers, listen to me. I have a qualm. Why didn't you just name the character Wayne? It would have been easier for all of us because... <laughs> I know I'm gonna do, and I'm not, I don't want to have to go out and edit and edit out every time I say Wayne instead of Dwayne. But I know him. I know him as Wayne. I, we know him as Wayne. We talked him as Wayne. So Wayne Dwayne. So if I say Wayne, you know I mean Dwayne. There, that's out there. All right. Um, yeah. So Brian is extremely excited that uh, Dwayne got his job back. So they are going out to celebrate that night. And on the way to the bar that night, Brian is wearing a very sensible fur like jacket, even though it seems to be hot out because, you know, everyone else is in shorts, but he has this beautiful (laughs) fur thing on. He tells Dwayne that, hey, we're also meeting a guy that I met on uh, Pounder at the bar. Now, Roger, has this happened to you before? Because it has happened to me where I'm supposed to be meeting a friend somewhere and I get there and my friend is like, oh, just so you know, somebody I met off Grindr is going to, I'm like, no, don't do that. How uncomfortable of a position can you put somebody in? Has that happened to you? Uh, Troy, the thing is, is I'm normally the person on the other end of the spectrum. I'm normally the one that's like, oh, by the way, I just met this guy like three hours ago. He has a great fucking ass and I'm going to bring him along and just be prepared. I might just dip out at a certain point. Like that's that's me in a, a social circle. Um, I feel like this, I feel very targeted by this film. I feel like I feel like I relate to all of the bad traits in all of these characters. Like I'm I'm very much Brian uh, many times in my life. Um, I make all, all of the bad calls that these individuals make that inevitably get them killed, I would be dead in this film within minutes. Minutes! This killer would specifically hunt me down. So yeah, um, but I... The relatability adds so much to the experience. I mean, so much of it just feels at home, at least for me as a gay man. And I know, you know, you talked about pride earlier and how it affects you and how you relate to it and, like, you know... Uh, how you respond to it. And I'm definitely one of those like gays that'll like be like, I'm diving into pride month. Like, you know, I get, I get super into it because I'm, I'm big into like, I think the community of it all. But I also think that like points that you mentioned are very valid and very true. And so I think that the way they touch on some of those personalities within the queer culture, um, I don't know. It's just super relatable. Honestly, large groups of gay people annoy me. And that's one of the reasons why I kind of avoid like the pride events and stuff like that. But it's, that's me. It's personally me. I know, I know it's terrible, but it's just my past experiences. Guys, stereotypes are sometimes a stereotypes for a reason. And I think that if you watch this film and you look at some of these characters that are extreme stereotypes, they're that way for a reason, because I'm telling you the gay in the gay culture, we all have met specific people that are mirrored by these characters. And a good example of one is the guy that Brian meets at the bar from Pounder, who I, he's never. Well, I find I think we find out his name. What's isn't his name like Brandon? They say it uh, later on in the film when his body is found. Yeah, they do say it, and I'm, it's evading me right now too. But I mean, Matt, Matt, or Brandon, or something yeah. like that. They do. They do say though, and I love this. I don't know if you caught this. I could be reading way into things, but he's a student at Beige University. 
Beige University, not white university, not black university, Beige University, which beige is like the most basic blase color you can come up with, right? And I just find it hilarious that this dude who is a very blah, blase, basic gay goes to Beige University. It's very fitting for him. Oh, it's it's very intentional and, and down to the khaki shorts. I mean, like, this is, a again, a very specific gay that we have all met before. Like, very well executed, well played. There is definitely some social commentary to be acknowledged within his interactions here. Um, he has Some of the things he says coming up here are unfortunately, again, ringing very true to home. But these, these gays definitely exist. And it's, again, a great depiction of that. Yeah, so he's like you're kind of like a good-looking guy, you know, built. He's wearing his khaki shorts. He's wearing his long-sleeved button-up shirt tucked into his shorts with his penny loafers. And immediately when Brian walks up to him and introduces himself, you can tell this dude is like, oh, yeah, this is not what I was expecting. And, you know, he's cordial for – standoffishly cordial for, you know, the first several minutes of their encounter. In the corner, we, we see this aged drag queen watch. We don't know who it is yet. And Dwayne sees her and it's like, what happened to Gloria Hole? And Brian's response is, Gloria Troll? What happened to her was booze, gravity, and a few bad song choices. And Brian makes it clear that now it's all about the new queen in town, Janet Fitness. And lo and behold, perfect timing because guess who comes on stage to perform? Janet Fitness. We get an array of very... Uh, elaborate, well-executed drag performances in this film. And, you know, for being a a smaller production, they obviously don't have the opportunity to use, like, well-known tracks, you know, classic pop tracks, classic dance tracks. They're they're having to pull out these obscure indie tracks that somehow fucking the score in this film in general is just phenomenal. Like, the, the fact that it is kind of these underground often grungier pop tracks that have this like real edge to them. Almost every single song choice in this movie pops. There are some truly electric decisions made when it comes to the music they use in this film. I mean, it gives it so much more life. And so some of these big drag numbers that we get starting here with Janet's big number, they're captivating and as they should be that is what drag culture is and you know drag culture is a very prominent element of of what this film is about and they deliver you get so much of it i mean starting this point moving forward you are really taken on a journey into the world of, of drag culture what goes on behind the scenes the highs and the lows of it how shitty it can get the whole thing that it's about to tackle with aging and you know growing out of your prime because you see Gloria there in the shadows lurking, watching as the show is starting up, and you can you can really see that she's you know completely on her own, no longer embraced by the community. She doesn't have really anybody around her talking to her, but this is what she does because it's just become like second nature to her at this point. You know, this is, this is her life. She is a performing queen. Um, this whole journey that we're about to go on is, is really, I think, truly captivating and, uh, it gets better with every viewing. Absolutely. And the characters in the film, I mean, the characters in the film make the film, you know? Yeah. Janet Finnis comes out and does her routine and the crowd. Good Lord. This crowd is acting like, I mean, she is, 
they're just throwing money at her, like literally handfuls of dollar bills, just throwing it up at her. And Brian, after her performance, he's definitely in awe of Janet Fitness. He says she is perfect. Hashtag goddess. And this is when the the dude, the, the mask dude, M-A-S-C mask dude, masculine dude is like, you know what? I'm not feeling this. Uh, I like dudes who act like dudes. And Dwayne's like, excuse the mouth. And his response is, you know what? I'm not into blacks either. And he leaves. He's like, I'm going to go get in a drink. You guys d- do your own thing. Ciao. And it's hilarious. I find this hilarious because Brian is way more offended by the fact that he said ciao <laughs> than any of the other things he said. Ciao. He says, ciao. Who says ciao? Uh, the whole decision to go there with this character, it seems like it could be a little heavy handed, but like, honestly, it's true. And that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. It is true. And you know, if you don't believe us guys, any of you guys out there that don't believe us, uh, I would, I would ask you to do, to download the grinder app. <laughs> grinder is going to get a surge in downloads from a bunch of like suburban housewives i don't know download the ground your app and just scroll through because there are i i I see them i see them and it's 20 fucking 23 roger uh i've seen them where you it says literally like no no asians no femmes no fats no fats no blacks Uh, yeah and you're like what the hell it's 2022 2023 i haven't had grinder for months but i i can tell you that i swear to god if you download it now and you look and you start scrolling, you are going to undoubtedly find a profile that says one of those things, if not all of them. It's truly disheartening. And you know, when you think about like the insecurities that we, at least our generation, I would say really grew up with as as gay men. um, And I'm sure the next generation will have the same thing because technology is at their fingertips. um, And from behind the safety of, you know, a computer screen or a cell phone, people feel like they can say a lot of things that I think face-to-face would not be able to come up in conversation. And it's, it really is one of, I think the the primary reasons why we, why the queer culture, we have so many internalized issues. I mean, body issues. I, I obsess over my weight. I, it affects me. It truly affects me. And, and I know it's because I, I grew up, you know, at the age of 18, I was getting on manhunt. I had my own place at 18. I was making horrible choices, getting on these fucking apps as soon as they came came out and it became my life. And to this day, I'm still someone that goes on them. You know, I'll fucking admit it right now. And it's, it's a, a tough pill to swallow because you're constantly exposing yourself to being degraded by people, <laughs> like being out openly insulted, opening up a message and not knowing if you're going to see something that's really just going to tear you down. I've had people make comments on my fucking nose. I have people make comments on my weight. And you know what? Like, Go fuck yourselves. Like seeing what comes to this character is very satisfying because, you know, while I've not had someone call me out for my color of my skin, I have had people call me out for my femininity. So I can relate to that comment because I'm I am at times a flamboyant homosexual and I fucking love that about who I am, you know, but uh, I mean, the, the relatability is there. And, and I do like the little joke with the chow, but there is certainly something to be acknowledged about this moment because you're right. It's 20 fucking 23. And people still think it's okay to list their preferences in a way that's derogatory towards other people. Go fuck yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I I would be willing to bet, Roger, that that gay men probably have the highest one of the highest percentages of like body dysmorphia, to be honest with you. I don't know how many gay men I know that that are obsessed with their bodies and think they're fat or think they're what. And it's like, dude, like, really? 
you're, you're five, eight and you're 150 pounds. You're fine. Like, come on. But yeah, this scene is very like it, it, when it happens, it just, it's so like, it's almost a punch because it happens kind of out of the blue. You don't expect the guy to say, and I'm not into blacks. I mean, it's bad enough. He says he wants guys who act like guys. And, and then it's just, yeah, it's, but it's, it, it rings it rings very true, unfortunately. And like I said, I think that that's why I, I, I mentioned it. I think these guys had a very deliberate commentary to make on the gay scene and gay culture. And they, they do it in my opinion, very splendidly, honestly, because there's nothing in this film that happens that does not ring true or realistic in terms of how characters treat each other, things that are said. There's this moment where like, Janet announces who's going to perform next. And Brian, when she's done on stage, runs up and gets her autograph. And she seems very pleasant, although she gives him his autograph and then she kind of scoots away real quick. And we get this moment where she goes backstage and there are some texts exchanged where we kind of get the first glimpse that Janet Fitness might not be the the most pleasant person in the world because someone texts her and asks her how the night's going. And she responds that she's not happy she has to share the stage with Miss Ugly Rhode Island, Audrey Hartburn. And the text comment is like, oh, God, could she, could she mess up her face even more? And Janet's response is, yeah, she can. And she probably will. A very like minor little scene, but it does give us, like I said, it gives us this first insight into like Janet Fitness's personality because she does not, unfortunately, turn out to be a very pleasant character. She has that one line she references a few times the mirror mirror on the wall why even bother asking that's very clear that she thinks like she thinks quite highly of herself she is like the featured performer that's clear um and she she thinks that she is above the other girls that does come across for sure back in the bar it's getting ready to be closing time and the 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 masculine dude who brian met up with gets messaged on pounder asking if he wants his dick sucked his response is, you know, do you got pics? And the person's like, blow and go, now or never, it's 3 a.m. So this dude is a little drunk. He's like stumbling outside and he goes to the the address that he was told to go to. And the person tells him to go in the backyard and go down the, um, the cellar door. And the guy does and he goes down there and it's, I, okay, I don't know. This is just me. I, I maybe, I don't know. I, first of all, Roger... <laughs> This is why I would live a little bit longer than you, probably. If I saw that cellar door open, I'm not going down there. There's no chance. I don't now. care what. I don't care what the promise of getting my dick sucked is. Trust me, I'd move on to the next profile, and I could probably find someone to suck my dick. That I don't have to go down to a cellar t- to do it. This. Oh, and the minute he gets down to the cellar, it's creepy as fuck. There's like. Oh my god. There's like a. Plastic wrap hanging from the ceiling, and it's a it's a makeshift glory hole. First of all, I'm not into glory holes at all. Like I've always been like terrified of glory holes simply because you don't know what's behind them. And this is a perfect fucking example. This when I saw this the first time, Roger, I was like, that is why glory holes are a fucking bad idea. I would never stick my dick through a hole that I did not know what was on the other side. Period. I don't know how low you think of me that you're like you're like. <laughs> I don't know about you, Ryan. No, no. Listen, let me be clear. Well, first of all, I like me. I got we all got our tastes, and you know, we all got our things. But one thing I'm not a huge fan of is like completely like just 
fully anonymous, not knowing what the person's face looks like. Like, I don't know. For all I know, there could be one tooth on the other end of that. And like, I'm just getting a gummin. And like that, like, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't know who's on the other end of that glory hole. So that's not going to appeal to me. I'm, I, I'm very specific about the kind of people I want to put my penis inside of in any way, shape or form. And so, and so this automatically sounds like a bad idea to me. This whole setup here to me, there's no way in hell. I wouldn't have even gone down that that the steps into that cellar. The moment someone said, you're coming into a cellar to begin with, I'd be like, absolutely not. Just like you said, Troy, I'll be going back on the apps. I'm sure I'll find somebody else. It's 2 a.m. It's not going to be that difficult. And they'll have a normal, they'll have a face and they'll have a place to go to with a bed that's not a, not a basement. And, and so I, I would not fall susceptible to this. But then you go down the staircase and you're absolutely right. This this layer of plastic tarp and like ominous lighting and like it's very moody. I mean, it's dramatic, but it's not I am not walking into this setup and saying, hmm, this is where I take my penis out and I enter it into a mysterious crevice in the wall. It seems extremely ominous. And then that that gloved hand <laughs> comes out of the oil and it like beckons. And it's, it's like in the most like Disney villain-esque way possible. It's like, oh, come here. I, I would be fucking out of there. But this guy seems into it. I mean, he's like, you don't know who the fuck is on the other end of that. Yeah, and you don't know what they're going to do. And this guy certainly, he gets the worst of it. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it couldn't happen to a to a, a better character, right? Yeah, he is not turned off by any of these warning signs that we have just talked about. Instead, he takes his dick out. And I got to say, Roger, I have seen a lot of films that show like f- dick, right? Fake dicks. I've, I've seen a lot. This is perhaps, I want to know where they got this dick done because this is perhaps the most realistic penis I've ever seen in a film. Most of them, right away, you can tell it's just good. They went down to their local triple X adult rated Lions Den video uh, video store and bought a fake penis off the the rack. This actually looks real. Yeah. It actually looks real. And I'm hey, and, and bless them for giving him a some nice girth to it and everything. I mean, it looks like a nice penis. Well, you know what really works here with this penis, Troy, is that they went big, but they didn't go so comedically large. I think that's why. No. No, that's what I'm saying. It looks purport like I look looking at this guy's build. I'd be like, okay, yeah, that fits him. You know, um, he he sticks it through, and the person starts pleasing him on the other <laughs> side, and then then they then they stop, and he's like, "Hey, why'd you stop? Why'd you stop?" And all of a sudden, you get this fucking visual of the person grinding this handheld meat grinder towards his penis to the point where the guy's like, "Oh yeah, oh, watch the teeth, watch the teeth," and you are literally subjected to a visual of a meat grinder grinding this man's penis to a pulp and the meat coming out of the the meat from his penis coming out of the side of it. Uh, It is so well executed. I love, I specifically very much love the shot of like, again, those Disney villain hands, like in those black rubber gloves, the latex gloves, um, you know, holding the meat grinder in slowly and in dramatic fashion, like turning it, being like, yes, it's about to happen. Like you, the viewer know exactly what's going to happen. And, they just, they milk the moment. They really like, I mean, they show quite a lot of meat, <laughs> bloody, pulpy, disgusting. Like I said earlier, like the gore in this is, 
It's chunky. They don't shy away from it. There's so much like texture to it, and it it's just gnarly. And then he falls backwards, and you got like the bloody stub of the dick spraying uh, blood all over. Oh. It's, it is so great. Oh yeah, there's the moment where he's pulling away, and it just like you can see the meat of the penis oh, stretching. Oh, oh god, my butthole's clenching. It's so <laughs> gross. Yeah, I mean, for for the first like you know, okay, we got the opening kill, but for the first you know major kill of the film, I mean, they knocked it out of the fucking park. I think they knew exactly what they were doing with placing this kill so early on in the film. And I gotta say, even the subsequent uh, kills that follow this one are pretty well executed. That's the one thing I, I want to say about this film is the death scenes in this film are really spectacles. The, the, the setups to all of them are great, and they're executed really, really well. I, tr- I like the transition. We've seen it before where you you, you get like a, a sex scene or a penis scene and then it transitions. But I do like this one where you, it transitions to sausages f- frying on a frying pan the next morning. And and Brian is now he's still upset. He's he's actually really upset that the, the dude from the night before thought he was too femme. He's like, me? Too femme? <laughs> With his like towel wrapped around his head and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, there's this moment, kind of a nice moment where Brian wants to know what happened uh, with Dwayne and his ex, uh, because du- the whole story is Dwayne moved away from Providence with his ex to open up a bed and breakfast. But now he's back. Dwayne basically comes clean and says that there was another there was someone else that, um, you know, things were going well. And then until they weren't and he found out that there was someone else and he was packing his shit up and moving, moving out. Simple as that. And, and I like when Dwayne is like actually one of the few times Dwayne in the film actually is like spilling his guts and, and telling something about himself that Brian asked him, you notice what's Brian do? He, t- he starts to, he takes out his phone and starts like texting or surfing the net. And like Dwayne has to like give him that look where he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. That is really too bad. Dwayne. That's me. I, I'm going to be the first to say it. That's me. And, and my, and Gustavo will tell all of you that I am that person who like, I'll ask someone like, oh, tell me how you're feeling. And they'll start talking and within like within seconds, I'm on my phone, like looking up like the best of like uh the like the the, the hit singles of the singer Mo. Like something completely <laughs> completely irrelevant. So like I mean, this hit home again, very much so. It brings true. I t- I do the same thing. I have to that I guess that's uh, that's one of the similarities we have because I will do the exact same thing. Where I will like try to like I'll ask somebody something and I'm like yeah okay I'm bored let me can I, let me look up Kylie Minogue's new song lyrics okay perfect um, yes <laughs> oh yes we got to talk about that that's that's it important is. topic okay so <laughs> that you cut back to the bar and tragedy is taking out trash with this go go boy who's just babbling about this Arab guy who came to the bar that that he thinks is in love with him but he doesn't know and like he doesn't want the guy hanging around him even though he has a big dick and they have great sex because the guy cramps his style. Blah, blah, blah. And tragedy opens up the dumpster and sees the fucking dead body of that opening kill guy who's now jaws like all disintegrated and shit. Her reaction is she just like, oh, she just shuts the <laughs> shuts the dumpster. She's not even affected. And the go-go boy's like, what? what what's what tragedy? What are you doing? And he opens the dumpster to throw his bag in and he sees the dead body. He's like, ah! I'm calling Tony. That go-go dancer doesn't have many scenes, but I I fucking love him. I'd be like, again, we all know that gay. He's just fucking rambling about himself, talking about this this hot Arab dude he's fucking, talking about his dick, 
just like just babbling and babbling. I, I really like this little moment for this character. He's not in it a lot. Um, but I gotta say, like, even when it comes down to the smaller side, like supporting characters, one thing that really impresses me is across the board, everybody knows exactly like who they're playing, the kind of character that they're interpreting. Um, nobody, even if they seem like they're making big, big choices, like they they all seem completely devoted to the material. And I really, I find it very admirable just how truly devoted every single actor is, even down to the fucking bridal party that you see later on in the movie. Like these fuckers, everyone is in it. Oh my God. I love the fact that they put that bachelorette party in there and we will talk about why when we get to that point. But, uh, so apparently the go-go boy goes and calls Tony because the next scene we are introduced to the two detectives that, are prominent throughout the film, De- De- uh, Detective O'Hara and his partner, Detective Barry. O'Hara is played by Michael Ahern, and Barry is played by, I think, Sean Murphy. Uh, these two together are are quite a treat to watch because they're like like there's this underlying like, are they sexually attracted to each other? Or are they not? Sometimes it's really blatant. Other times it's like, oh, I might just read into this too much. But there's obviously a a hinted at sexual attraction between these two guys because right away detective Barry, he's eating this like cream filled long John and he gets cream on his mouth and detective O'Hara reaches over and like very sensually wipes the cream off uh, his lip with his finger and then licks it off his finger himself. I can think of few things in my life that I find hotter than Michael J. Aaron reaching over to that man's jaw, oh. wiping that custard off his beard and fucking licking it off his oh thumb. I mean, you know, kudos to you, Mike, uh, that you imagine be that fucking hot in that scene because good God, these two together though. Well, in the tight, the tight clothes he wears do, uh, doesn't hurt either. He's, he's looking great. I mean, give me a, a man that's in a tight, ugh. Looking great. I mean, come on. <laughs> Good for you, man. You know what? Yeah, fuck. You know, gee, I'll say it across the board. Hot, ca- hot cast. Hot cast. And just to be complimentary, All respectfully, a- across the board. I'm tipping my hat. <laughs> We're not stereotypical. We're not lusting after no! you. Admiring no. your beautiful, we're your beautiful proud. Looks. We're proud that you guys managed to look that good in, in, in what you created. And you know what? Deserved. Accolades deserved. No, I'm not saying I wouldn't hit him up on Pounder, but, oh you know. Hey. Oh, my God. Classy. We're keeping it classy at Dark Knight Podcast. <laughs> but holy fuck. They, they look good. They're looking real good. And I love the sexual undertones because, or the homoerotic undertones. Yeah, they're palpable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I love it. I love it because it's never really like it's not in your face. It's all these little things that you're like, oh, okay, they're are they partners? Because uh, what happens is O'Hara gets a phone call from Tony. We find out, and Tony's like, well, yeah, I have to I have to bring my partner though. And you, the guy on the other lines, must say something like, oh, you're. He's like, no, 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 my my detective partner. And so he hangs up. O'Hara tells Detective Barry that they're going to go see his old friend, but don't say anything about his hand. So they cut to Tony's office and Tony is highly upset that they found this body in in his dumpster. And he wants these two detectives to get rid of the body. And you can tell detective Barry's kind of new to this whole scenario because when uh, Tony takes out a wad of, 
money and slams it in front of uh, Detective O'Hara. He's like, get rid of the body. Detective O'Hara is like, uh, I don't know, Tony. Times have changed. It's not as easy to get rid of a body as it used to be. So what's Tony do? He pulls out another wad of money, slams it down, plus a whole bag of cocaine. And he's like, make it happen. And you can, and the whole time, Detective Barry's just standing there like wide-eyed like a deer in a headlights. He's like, are you like fucking serious? <laughs> I love that the name of the dumpster that they take the body to is behind a Chinese buffet called Poo Poo's. Uh, <laughs> and I, I love the fact that in order to get rid of the, these are two police detectives. They could take this body and take it anywhere, right? What do they decide to do? They are like, oh, we're just going to take it and dump it, dump it in the Poo Poo's dumpster. It's so sleazy, but it's perfect. And in the, but in the meantime, they're like wrapping the body up with duct tape. The detect- if you watch Detective Barry, he's like wrapping the body up with duct tape, using his fingers to rip the duct tape. You try to tell me that the Providence Police Department wouldn't do DNA testing on this damn <laughs> this damn duct tape that, <laughs> that that Detective Barry just put his prints and DNA all over. Oh, it, it's 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 so funny. It's so comical. I, I just love the fact that they're like, oh, yeah, we'll just dump it over in, in the Chinese buffet's dumpster. And then we find out that that causes the poor Chinese buffet to go, go out of business. <laughs> that poor Chinese buffet. Oh, my God. It comes up a couple of times. I, I feel for them. Uh, so and well, in the meantime, while they're dumping this body, O'Hare gets a call about another missing college student who happens to be the, the guy who got his dick grinded off. Okay, so I love that we get to see a a glimpse of Tuesday night at the gay bar in Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> I want to know what the fuck is tragedy performing? <laughs> I don't know. Is what it is what happening is happening in this moment? But it's, I'm <laughs> vibing with it. I I mean, everything she's bringing to the table. She's the closest thing to like a character from like a Rocky Horror Picture Show you're going to get in this film. She's so extreme some of her wardrobes later on is clearly lady gaga straight out of american horror story but done so fucking well i mean the caliber of presentation value this broad's bringing to the table and yeah i don't know what this this synth machine is that she's playing (laughs) she's so her bow her elegant bow afterwards it's very like (laughs) very like elaborate um i like everything about her Oh, I love tragedy. And she, I, what I love about tragedy is she's so, she's, she is so unfazed by anything. Like she, she's literally performing for two guys that are up front, just like staring at her. Like, what the fuck is she doing? And she's still giving it her all excited as hell to be doing it. She gives her a little curtsy. She walks up. So she's not phased. In the meantime, you get our first introduction to fucking Gloria Hole. And I want to, I want to say right now, I want everyone to know. I am so in love with the character of Gloria Hole. Has to be, and I'm I'm 100% serious, has to be one of my favorite characters from a horror film. I fucking love Gloria Hole, Roger. I don't know how you feel about her. I get her sarcasm. I love everything about this character, including her first line when she's like, oh, she's watching tragedy. And she's like, yeah, just like my neurologist says, you can always find beauty in tragedy. And she's looking around and she's like, all my years I've put in, and this is what I end up with a Tuesday night. And then under her breath, she's like salami sucking piece of shit, meatball filled piece of shit. Fucking fuck Tuesdays, Tuesdays with Gloria hole. I think one of the most impressive aspects about Gloria hole is that the performance is, I mean, it's a drag queen stellar. Well, it's stellar. It's stellar. 
but it's you know it's a drag queen, so it's there's a lot of potential to go completely over the top and in, in everything single thing she says, everything she does. But what really makes her work is is the fact that this is not a like Faye Dunaway, Joan Crawford, Mommy Dearest performance. It's actually at times quite understated. Um, you really get to know the clockwork of what makes Gloria Hole tick, um, and in the performance is just. Truly, I mean, very nuanced. There is a lot of little details in every choice that's made with this performance. I, I really have to say that I think you're absolutely 100% right that this is one of the most memorable performances, at, at least within recent memories. But I'm going to say, like, overall, one of the main reasons this movie took off, I think, to the extreme that it did is because of this fucking character. I, it is one of the finest crafted, well, first of all, interpretations of a drag queen that I have seen in cinema ever. And of course, it's because it's handled by a completely queer team here. But man, I mean, I don't, you don't get performances like this in most mainstream films, let alone in indie of this level. And then Michael McAdam that plays Gloria Hole brings a, a caliber of, of acting talent to this project that I, I know I, for one, when I first sat down and watched this movie, I did not anticipate to get a performance of this scale. So, you know, you go in, you're watching this movie, it, it, it it's indie, it looks good, but it's indie, and all of a sudden you've got this, like, truly just layered, internalized, but oftentimes also outwardly expressed in her own ways, very, very specific performance of, of, of a tortured, wounded, defeated drag queen. I, I, I don't know. I, I can't I can't even begin to imagine where this individual is hiding all this talent all this time and and then came out of nowhere with this project to, to give this fucking performance. Like this is a career that needs to sustain because it, it really is one of the single best performances I've seen in a long time in a movie in general. Yeah, yeah, great. Peyton St. James, I believe, is his performer name in in Rhode Island. I I think, and again, I I could be wrong, guys. You can correct me, but I think he has a he has been a drag performer in in Providence for for quite some time. No, I agree with you. It's it's such an endearing performance, and I love this interaction he has with um with Dwayne as well, where he's like he turns around to Dwayne and says, "Do I know you?" And Dwayne's like, "Yeah, I used to work here." And he's like, "Oh yeah." Glory Hole's like, "Oh yeah, Tito." <laughs> And Dwayne's like, no, Dwayne, Wayne, Dwayne, Elaine, Dwayne, Mitchell, Dwayne. All right, Shane. It's so funny. And then he has that cheers up your ass that comes up a few times. It definitely comes up later on in the movie. Uh, yeah, every 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 line out of his mouth is is a one liner, or a one liner in the sense of like something that I could look up in like classic quotes from a movie and and be referenced as a, just a great fucking delivery. I mean. Everything that comes out of this performer's mouth is truly hilarious and impressive. Yeah. So, and then you get her uh, performing uh, a very classic, slow, old school drag song. And there's hardly anyone at this bar when she's performing. And finally, she stops performing halfway through and says, fuck this. And storms into Tony's office while he's snorting some cocaine. And she said, you know, she's worked too hard for this for too long. Remember when she first got there, she was young, dumb, full of cum. She's 
she's sort of like flirting with him. She's like touching her chest, lowering her blouse a little bit. And she says, you know what, Tony, give me any other night, but Tuesday, give me a Saturday. I'll change it up. And he's like, yeah, you're, you're too old. You know, he, and he tells her, no, the, the people want something fresh, not something you pulled out of your sarcophagus. (laughs) And she tells him that she will change it up and do something modern. And he finally agrees and says that she can take Saturday night because Audrey Hartburn is under house arrest for indecent exposure. (laughs) But if she fucks it up, she's done. So she's very thankful to him. She tells him, you know what? I'm not going to fuck it up. I'm a professional. On the way out, he stops her. He's like, hey, Gloria. She turns around. She's like, yes, Mr. Two Fingers. He throws her some money, throws money at her. And he's like, why don't you get yourself a new wig? That one looks like a cum rag. Right off the bat, you get this moment of of dialogue with Gloria, you know, because, you know, she's pretty much one of the last characters, focal characters you're introduced to really get to spend some time with. But, you know, really quick, they're they're giving you what is actually some kind of touching, sympathetic moments. You know, this moment where he throws the cash at her and, you know, she turns around. She's like, yes, Mr. Fingers. And then he throws these like singles at her and he, he makes this derogatory statement about her her wig. Um, and, and she gets very defensive. You know, she gets very defensive. She's like, don't you forget that I will always be the first lady of Providence. <laughs> it's this big moment. It is a big moment. I love the line. I love the line earlier when she's like, she says something like, did your new girls give you some money, Tony? You know, you can get your new girls to do cartwheels up and down your fucking stage. But don't you forget, I will always be the first lady of Providence. I I love it. I love the her performance. It's so she's so demanding. Like this is demanding, charismatic. I mean, they they really struck gold casting her. Um, and it's just Again, I, I love this character so much. I, I'm surprised. I need I need Gloria Hole merchandise. I need everything Gloria Hole because I am obsessed with this character. And the more I watch it, the more I become obsessed. Like this is going to be me, like in in 20 years. <laughs> I'm saying already. I'm picturing. I'm like probably I need to see Troy recreate that monologue. I need to see you in that costume, <laughs> flipping lit cigarettes and baby carriages. <laughs> oh my god, that hat she wears later when she turns around in that polka dot hat. I mean, she's got so many moments that are divine level memorable. I mean, and I know that sounds. I'm sure there are gays who are gonna be like blasphemy, but yeah, the moment she flicks that fucking cigarette button, that baby carriage. I'm if I wasn't sold already, I was like hook, line, and sinkered. So yeah, she truly is. The most memorable aspect of a, a film that's truly memorable, you know, this movie on its own without Gloria Hole has many phenomenal elements, but throw her in the mix, my God! Like this movie will maintain a cult status because of her. Well, now we get Janet Fitness. Uh, she's at some random, like, is it a bar or something? She's drinking out of this obnoxious straw that says Janet in cursive. I want that straw. <laughs> Uh, well, I, it, do you want it to say Janet or do you want it to say something? I mean, else? I'd like it to say Roger, but I would still settle for Janet because <laughs> it should say, it should say meat. Oh my God. I can't steal there. I can't steal that from them. This is their straw. <laughs> I certainly can't have a meat straw. <laughs> too similar. Too similar. <laughs> <You can't>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean your personal straw, not in your movie, but in your, just in your personal life. I want to see you walk up and down the strip with a meat straw. When you come to Vegas. Next okay. Time. I'll have one made just for the occasion. 
But Brian walks in, and I did not notice the first, like, I don't know how I did not catch this the first five times I watched this movie, but he is wearing a Janet Fitness shirt. Did you see that? Oh, it's so elaborate. It's like, it is like a finely crafted Jersey-esque, like, crop, soft pink, different hues of pink, a very elaborate image of Janet's face. I did not know his character was this deep in to Janet, and I'm shocked that Janet doesn't know that this guy... (laughs) is obsessed with her enough uh, enough that he's had a shirt crafted with her face on it like that is off-putting well yeah he has i mean there's this encounter with her he goes up to and he's really happy and he's like hey you remember me um yeah i'm also a performer we met you were gonna sign my headshots and you know what i can totally get you tickets to my show for free i just don't know when it's gonna be and she's like you couldn't pay me enough and he's like excuse me she said, did I stutter? And you can tell right away he is so like taken aback. Like his his whole demeanor changes. He's like, well, in a very honest way, because Brian, uh, Brian is usually very animated and, and whatnot. And this is the moment when he's like, he's knocked down a few levels and you can tell he's like, uh, that was kind of rude. And she's like, yeah, well, you're kind of fucking annoying. And so he realizes he, he even says to her, he's like, oh, so you really are just the fucking worst, right? And she says, well, yeah, you're a fucking walking restraining order. And as she walks away, she goes, nice shirt. She is so shitty here, but there is definitely an element within the drag scene that I think that even this is commentary on. There is a cattiness. There is, uh, I think, a level of, I guess, cruelty, I almost say. Like, there's quite a lot of judgment. I mean, drag queen to drag queen. There's a lot. There's a lot of need to take your thoughts and feelings to social media and spill it all out on the stage and tear each other down. And I do think that one thing I appreciate from um, you know seeing drag really kind of step out into the forefront is when you get to see moments of like camaraderie between drag queens because this is this thing that is constantly fed into that there's always turbulence between drag performers. I don't think that needs to be the case. Um, I think that there are lots of amazing artistic performers out there who have their own take on it and and to to see them kind of lift each other up and and raise each other up is is really uh rewarding because i think it's it doesn't need to be a a form of self-expression that needs to tear others down and with everything going on with drag culture right now like if anything like drag queens need to come together more and work work in unity and i think we're starting to see a lot of that which i really um am happy about but seeing this personality because listen i'm gonna say it right now I, I dabbled in drag for multiple years, and it was something that I considered like a big chapter in my like personal like self evaluation of like who am I, where do I fall under the LGBTQIA plus umbrella, um, how do I identify, like how do I identify? That was a big question I had for a while, and drag was a big, big chapter for me, and and, and so seeing this kind of personality existing within this world really rang true and uh, again really well played i mean everyone in this movie shines but janet is really phenomenal in this role and brings that cattiness across in in a really believable way yeah you definitely come to despise her character pretty damn quick pretty damn quick uh there is a scene with gloria running bingo because that's her her thing she runs bingo and <laughs> I love the scenes when she's writing bingo, but we do see that that, that Kitty, Kitty Litter was her drag mother. 
So, which is Kitty Litter, I believe, if it's the one I'm thinking of, I think like she was a big drag queen back in like the early 80s. I wonder, is this the same one? Like she was like Miss Gay America and all this stuff. I'm assuming that's that's who it is, right? I'm I'm assuming. I, I really myself don't know. Yeah, there's not another, there shouldn't be another drag queen called Kitty Litter. But if that's it, it was kind of a nice little touch to have a very well-respected drag queen be Gloria Hole's mother or drag mother because then that just again, falls into line with how uh, Gloria Hole is feeling about being so like feeling like she's been like disposed of so easily when she comes from a, um, a line of performers that are very prominent. Dwayne is walking with Brian, who is now wearing a black headpiece <laughs> because he's mourning Janet being dead to him. <laughs> uh, and there's this moment where he says, and I, I like this, there's this moment where he tells Dwayne that she's a monster. And Dwayne says, they're all monsters. Tony's a monster. They're all monsters. And it, it comes into play very later in the film um, during the climax. And I like that sort of that it was kind of comes full circle. And, you know, Dwayne makes a comment, why do everyone in position of power have to be bad? And Brian says, maybe things have changed. Dwayne's like, no, nothing's fucking changed. I got to get to work. Uh, it's, it's a cute little moment. They're walking down the street holding hands. It, it's it's a nice little kind of tender moment between the two of them. Yeah, those two are given a lot of time to develop a friendship, a relationship together. And I like that it never touches on like um, sexual, because I do think that's something that like the importance of the few queer relationships you have that are not sexual, I, I think are, are oftentimes as you start to age something to be treasured, you know, because like, let's be real, like it's the gay man's handshake. You, sh- you sleep with a lot of your friends. I mean, it just is what it is. And so seeing these two having formed just like a really true, genuine friendship together is very um, endearing. I mean, they are a very endearing duo. Um, and, and you do come to care about both of them and the relationship they share for each other um, and how they how the one reacts to, to learning information that they find out about the other later on. That, that At that point, feels very much like it rings true because I believe these two gays genuinely care about one another. Back at the bar, Audrey Hartburn shows up, and she apparently is off house arrest now because she found the judge on Pounder. But Janet tells her that, oh, sorry, Tony gave your spot to Gloria Troll on Saturday. And of course, Aubrey's taken aback, and she's like, well, whatever, that's fine with me. I don't want my name on the same flyer as that old, that beat up old troll. And then she asks to borrow Janet's mirror. Janet gives it to her, and then like aggressively, like, gets in her face and is like, yeah, here's my mirror. Because if you're going to have two faces, at least make one of them pretty. Is she mad that Audrey's talking about Gloria? I, I was kind of confused why her reaction was the way it was and what, what she meant by, if you're going to have two faces, make sure one of them's pretty. Like I, I was a little, did you understand this? I think that she's saying like, if you're going to have a face when you're in drag and a face when you're a boy, at least make the, the drag face pretty. It's saying basically out of drag that, she's an ugly dude was kind of how I took away from it. Also, I do notice that Janet literally like takes no prisoners. She is literally insulting to everybody. I don't think she has anybody in the film that is her friend. So she just takes cheap shots wherever she can get them. Okay. I did not even think about what you just said, but I thought it was more of along the lines that she was upset that Aubrey, uh, Audrey was saying something about Gloria behind her back. Cause I was thinking, well, why you hate Gloria? It was just like a, a real uh, aggressive, like gesture for for janet to make kind of out of the blue 
but I mean, it fits it fits her character quite a bit. And again, you just you just grow each scene to despise this character even more when you find out she's just a terrible person. Uh, there's this moment with these two other drag queens. Ro- is it Rosebud and Lindsay? Yes. <laughs> where like Tony yells at them to get their asses upstairs and do their job. And Rosebud makes a comment that at first she thought it was Tony that that maybe killed the guy that was found. And Lindsay's like, you think your cousin would kill somebody? And she's like, yeah, you know my family. And Tragedy's sitting over there. And they ask, they ask Tragedy what the body looked like. And she's eating this like fruit with this knife. She's like stabbing the knife into this fruit, taking pieces off and like licking the knife. And all she responds is lost. My God, I didn't think I needed this moment. These two random queens, like this is the first time you're really introduced to them. And then there's this moment where the one just like turns and looks at the camera and she's like, tragedy. What did the body look like? <laughs> and like you see the knife like go into the pomegranate and it's just such as like the, this aggressive little moment. And, and then she just like looks at the knife and she's like lost. It's such a perfect delivery in the moment. It, it could have easily not worked. Uh, but for some reason, it's just this other little standout moment that it's, it's such a great character quirk. It's betra- everything tragedy does is gold in this film. Mm. Oh yeah. And that rosebud with her raspy cigarette smoking voice. <laughs> I'm the mayor of this goddamn bar. I believe it. I believe it. Rosebud. (laughs) (laughs) Rosebud's fiance, right? (laughs) The bar is closing and the bartender tells uh, Audrey that he cannot ask if she can stay for him. And she says, okay. So she goes downstairs. She's counting her money. She's like, this isn't even enough for nails. God, this town is cheap. And a figure comes up wearing this like mirrored mask. It's just like a, a, a whole mirror. It looks like just a round mirror over their face. She thinks it's tragedy, of course. And she gets up and gives this mirror a, a very passionate kiss before grabbing her mirror and saying, mirror, mirror on the wall. That Janet is suck a, such a fucking bitch. And all of a sudden, the person grabs her face and smashes her face repeatedly into her mirror. Um, and it's. Pretty well done. You see the chunks of her face is embedded with all these chunks of glass. Her death shot of her face, you know, laying sideways facing the camera, and you just see all the glass pieces embedded with blood pooling out from each of them. It's pretty. It's pretty well done. Oh, she looks great in this moment too. I mean, this outfit. She's she's selling it. She's selling it. And uh, this whole little moment, this character, she's not really been huge, but she's had a little more time to develop than you know other previous skills. So this whole like sequence, it feels like they really give her like a grand send off. And yeah, like once they start doing like the face to the glass and coming up and she has like a big scream and then she goes down again and there's more glass, that final shot on her face, I fucking love it. I mean, it, 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 it was, I don't want to say it was lost to me, but I for, just forgot that every, like you said earlier, every kill in this is, is a spectacle. Like that's absolutely the truth. Like they take their time, each and every kill is like a moment to be savored. And this is certainly one of those. Like it stands out. It's very well shot. They put so much care and attention into the details of their kills. And I really appreciate that about this film. Yeah, no, the kills are definitely, I think every kill is a standout in this film, honestly, in one way or the other. There's this little moment where Wayne sees Gloria Hole walking down the street carrying her bingo cage and he waves at her. <laughs> oh my love that. She's like, I fucking love it. <laughs> so fucking like carrying that goddamn ball, like all the balls clanking around in her arm. It's so fucking And she funny. says, 
I don't have any cash. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds stupid. Oh my god, I love these little moments though. Oh, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> At home, Dwayne basically comes out and shows uh, Brian the outfit that he has to wear for that evening's Mask for Mask Ball, which is the outhouse's biggest event of the the year. And it's basically your typical, like what you would expect, a very gay, tight-fitting blue shorts, uh, a rainbow-feathered like harness thing. He looks great. He looks great. Uh, it's very gay. And, and Brian's like, oh, my God, I'd kill for your skin. <laughs> uh, which I like because that becomes the tagline for their movie. I, th- I believe that's on like the, the poster art. I like kill for your skin. I love that line. And then they chatter about how the relationship is. So like Elphaba and Galinda again, cute little moments between these two. You really buy their friendship and they have great chemistry together. You really believe that these two know each other in real life, which, which they do and that they're friends in real life, which they are because it comes across so truthfully on on film honestly oh i feel like a lot of these little things are things that they've probably said to each other before like it really does like that little bit about him being like okay we have a our relationship is so alphabet and glinda walk with me on this like the little little things that he says i i i don't know it's very uh, authentic yeah, well, the bar that evening, the outhouse is having their mask for a mask ball. And Janet's in Tony's office. She is mad that he is letting Gloria Hole perform. She's like, I cannot believe you're letting Gloria Hole ruining ruin the biggest night of our the year. And basically, he tells her, you know, she doesn't. <laughs> well, first of all, he says she doesn't have much longer. <laughs> Which, I mean, Glory Hole's not that old. It's not like she's in a wheelchair barely scraping by. And Janet's response is, well, it's not a fucking hospice, Tony. They're acting like this woman is like 95 years old. I just, I, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah. I also like, like, during this conversation when she's, like, lifting her boots up and everything, how they, like, they add in a lot of, like, like, you hear, like, the sound effects of it. It's very exaggerated at times, but it, again, it just, it works in this world. Yeah, and Tony tells her, let him worry about his business and she worry about little backflips or whatever she does out there. And, you know, she goes in on him. She's like, your business, let me tell you about your business. Your bar smells like a venereal disease. I told you to fix the floorboard. My heels keep getting stuck and she slams her foot up there with her elaborate high heels. Uh, (laughs) And he's like, those floorboards have seen more popular girls than you, Janet Fitness. And she's like, "Eh," and gets out and leaves. That's Again, Funny encounter. It's it's hilarious. Yeah, the little exaggerated sound effects, like when she slams her heel on his desk and everything. We now get Rosebud's Beth's performing a very old school fashioned, old school fashioned drag song. And I want I want to know, like, I I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's funny. I'm sure it's meant to be that way. But like this Rosebud Beth's seems about the same age as Gloria Hole and is just and performs just as old fashioned songs as Gloria Hole does, but everyone seems to love this Rosebud. I'm like, kind of what's the deal here? Troy, Rosebud is the mayor of this bar. So so you can't come for the mayor. I, I don't feel like you there well, I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um this the the structure within this gay bar like there are like <laughs> there are so many queens you, you you're still beating more of them as you go along um but yeah i mean there was like a hierarchy within this gay bar gloria is definitely at the bottom of it 
everyone takes cheap shots for Gloria. She doesn't seem like she has anybody um, that she can really turn to. And I do think when it comes to like this moment, like, you know, there's this moment with her talking with, um, with Janet in, in the dressing room that, that happens here that she's smoking the cigarette and, and they have this like really awkward tense moment together where she says that whole line, my beautiful he man shouldered sister. Like it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's, there's so much animosity between them. Uh, you know, this has been like a long time developing, but God, like I can't even imagine, imagine being Gloria Hole and just going to work on a goddamn daily basis. I mean, every Tuesday must be fucking miserable for her. These queens are just so cold. Oh, I love their encounter in the dressing room where Gloria just starts hysterically laughing at her while she's lighting her cigarette. And it's like, you think you're going to stay oh, so good. You think you're going to stay young forever. Every bleached asshole expires. And then as you know, Janet, oh as Janet's leaving the, the, the dressing room, Gloria says, do me a favor. Nail that death drop for me. Oh yeah. Like there's so much that comes back. Um, and, and ties up nice and neatly, like little pieces of dialogue, little things that are referenced. And I, I think you saw that a lot in St. Drogo as well. Like these, these filmmakers are really good at tying up loose ends here. Um, and, and they intentionally plant all these little breadcrumbs for you to follow that do come back into play. But goddamn, I mean, this scene, I mean, even the bingo scene earlier, I gotta say, I could watch that scene on repeat, just the scene of him talking to that fucking memorial of kitty litter, just being like, it's the end of a legacy, or like, whatever he says. Like, I mean, every little moment with Gloria is stellar, but some of these moments where she starts to go darker, really, like, fucking creepy. I mean, it's so well done. Well, it leads to Gloria Hole's performance that evening, which remember, she said she was going to do something more modern and she comes out on stage. Hardly anybody claps for her and she's wearing this outfit that I think she looks great in. It's like this hot pink wig, yellow boots, this this colorful bodysuit with these flared shoulders and she starts to perform this song called Hashtag. I swallow. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the only lyrics to the song, isn't it? Hashtag. I swallow. It is so uncomfortable. <laughs> and she is trying. Bless her heart. She's trying. She looks so awkward. So uncomfortable. There's this moment where like she tries to, you know, do a like get down and do like a split and she falls. Then she sort of like she starts like humping the stage and the audience is not at all impressed. They're laughing at her. And the uh, the performance end, and someone in the in the audience yells, "Yeah, Grandma, fuck it up!" And like someone throws a glass up on stage, and then Janet, of course, has to chime in and says, "See you next Tuesday, Gloria." And she runs off stage and goes back into her dressing room. In the meantime, Dwayne has seen this. You know, he he realizes that you know this might have been a, the the patrons might have gone a little too far. So he, in his sweet the sweet soul that he is goes back in her dress room and she's crying out of, out of wig looks like, you know, now looks like the only time in the film where you see basically Gloria as a man, the wig is off and Dwayne comes in to tell her, tell her that, you know what? You're a great queen. You're a legend in this town. And Gloria's unfortunate response is fuck you. Get the fuck out of my dressing room. I don't need some pity from some fucking shot boy. You know, one thing I really do appreciate about Dwayne is while he is, you know, 
he steps into the final girl um, archetype. You know, he he is the uh, the the gay boy rendition of the final girl. He is serving that purpose. Um, but while he does hit a lot of the beats that we expect from a final girl, you know, likable, relatable, somewhat downtrodden. There's other things that I really love about his personality that feel very fresh to this kind of focal character. For example, like, yes, he's he's likable, but also like, don't fuck with him. Like at the moment that Gloria makes this very like, just cruel, nasty comment. And I get it. She's emotional, but still it's like uh, not necessary. He immediately like comes right back for her and calls her a, a bitter old queen. And like, he just comes at her. He's like, go fuck yourself. Like, and I love that. I love that. He's very quick to defend himself, speak out, you know, for himself or for his friends, as we learn as well. Um, it's a strong trait that really uh, helps this character, I think, shine, especially as the film starts to progress, you know, and, and focus more and more around him. He's definitely beat beat down by life, but he's still uh, resilient, and he's not going to take shit from anybody. He's been through enough shit, I think, with everything that's happened prior. That at this point, he's like, fuck it. I have nothing to lose. Go fuck yourself. You're going to be shitty to me. Go fuck yourself. I, I love that about this character. Yeah, no, he definitely has moments where he steps it up and like he doesn't let people fuck around with him. He doesn't, he, he's not a pushover at all. Like he has no qualms fighting back. We now go to O'Hara and Detective Barry finding the body of that dude who had his penis grinded off. And they realize that these bodies are all have something in common and that they are drained of blood. So as they're pondering what the killer could be doing with the blood, they get a call that the drag queen, Aubrey Harburn's body was found. Now we do get this little scene and God, you know, I've heard that, you know, I've heard that like in like reviews and stuff that I've read about this film and stuff, I have heard that people think it may be a, a little bit too long and that certain scenes could have been cut from the film, which probably, probably I don't know which scenes I would cut from the film because I fucking love every single one of them. And like, this is an example of a scene that probably could be cut from the film and it, it wouldn't affect anything. But if they cut this film, if they cut this from the film, I would have been extremely pissed because I love this little scene. It's a scene with Gloria on the bench and, and the, 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 the woman jogger comes up, stops to tie her shoe and has her baby carriage in there. And Gloria looks in the baby carriage and like literally flicks, flicks her lit cigarette in the carriage. <laughs> This is one of the, the the finest scenes I've ever seen. Oh, I love this scene. She is like all she's <laughs> she's wearing a shirt that says what's it say? It says "fuck you, bitches" or something like that. It's all sparkly, and uh, as the woman jogs off, Gloria's like, "Ah, oh, fuck you, Providence." This scene it sticks with me. I feel like if they would just take this scene and just play this scene, I don't know, before major movies. <laughs> Like in the theater, like like along with the trailers. If you just showed me this scene and just said "Death Drop Gorgeous," I think you could you could have released this film to theaters and people would have come out in droves because this scene is so fucking hilarious. Like the fact that like it's not like even like it's just like an empty baby carriage. Like they do have someone's baby. Like there is a baby, and they have a moment where it cuts to Gloria looking at the baby, and then cuts back to the chubby baby like looking back at Gloria, and then she electively chooses to. <laughs> <laughs> to ash her cigarette or throw, flick her cigarette in this baby carriage. Like, that baby's gonna 
catch on fire. I, you know, I love, and lest we forget that we haven't acknowledged yet that we never uh, were aware that was Drew Barrymore. By the way, cats. <laughs> but this is right along those lines of like, I wanted to see Drew Barrymore and cats. I get electrocuted so fucking bad. I wanted that baby to get that cigarette. You know what, Gloria Hole? I get it. I, I, I'm picking up what she's putting down. Oh, I love it. I love it. There is a scene where O'Hara and Barry are back in Tony's office talking uh, to him about it. It looks like they have a serial killer on, on the loose. Uh, he's upset. Tony's upset because he's like, I paid you two twats a shit ton of money to make this go away. And they tell him, you know what? We'll do what we can, but we're going to need surveillance. We're going to need to surveillance your place, interview your employees. It's like, well, you want my last two fucking fingers too? And then that pup is in the corner. And it's like growling at the detectives. <laughs> That pup pup has such an interesting story for being a character with no dialogue. And also, do we ever find out why Tony Two Fingers only has two fingers? Is that ever explained? It's not, is it? It's never explained, no. That's a that's a bold move. Like bringing in the fact that a character has two fingers by by in, actually like involving it in the character's name description, Tony Two Fingers, and never telling us the audience why he only has two fingers. But you know what? I I'll take it. I I appreciate that about that character as well. <laughs> we get a homoerotic scene of Barry and O'Hara at the police station. Barry's rubbing O'Hara's shoulders as O'Hara's looking at surveillance video from the night that um the dude was killed with the meat grinder and <laughs> Barry makes a comment. He's like, you know, I bet this would feel better if your shirt was off. <laughs> oh, and they watch the video and they do see like the encounter because there was the moment at the bar that evening when Dwayne purposely bumps into that dude that says he wasn't into blacks and tells him to fuck off. And they see this on the video. So they automatically um, think that maybe Dwayne could be the killer. O'Hare's like, I don't know. What would his motive be, though? Barry says, well, maybe he's just a psycho homo. (laughs) Simple enough. Simple enough explanation, right? What more do you need? So the the go-go boy from earlier, he comes into play now because he is relaxing at home when he gets a message on Pounder saying it looks like he works out a lot. And his response is like, "Uh, duh. And the person's like, hey, do you need a do you need a massage? So he immediately just goes to this random person's house. We get this scene of him getting naked with this cute little bubble butt. Good Lord. Oh, did you see that little butt? It's a good butt. So yeah, I mean, hell yeah. He lays on the massage table. Someone comes in, t- puts this record on. And you mentioned the score being like great in this film. And it absolutely 100% is. And uh, like this moment, the song that's playing during this scene Almost like if you if you would if you would play me this song that's playing and without any context, be like, I'm going to play this over a scene of a guy being having his throat slit. I would be like, no, that's not going to work. But somehow it comes together and it makes this scene much more eerier. I don't know what it is. It just the score and just everything leading up to this. It's very like methodic. And what you have is the killer comes in gets on top of the um, the go-go boy and massages him, but then takes a butcher knife out of the towel and pulls his head up and violently slits his throat. And this is a great throat slit. Oh, I, it's probably got to be. The, I mean, it's definitely, I would say, the, the best gore effect in the film. But overall, I mean, 
it's a very detailed throat slit. And you can even see like the pores in the beard of the stubble on his neck, like right down to the very edge of the cut. It's extremely impressive. I'm, I'm weird about the gloved hands giving a massage. That's real strange. Uh, that would feel weird on my skin. But other than that, I mean, this scene is a very sensual scene. I think it's why exactly like what you said with the song, you wouldn't anticipate it to work, but it really does. Because there is an element of, of eeriness to this whole sequence. And, and you get the shot of like his face looking through the, the hole in the, the table. And once you realize like what's about to happen, like there's nothing this guy can fucking do. So it just, you get these like really uncomfortable shots of the hand, like kneading the skin and everything. It's all oiled up. And then shink, you just see this amazing cut and the blood is excessive. I mean, they use so much fucking blood in this movie. It's truly impressive, but I, I love that, you know, this is not a queer slasher that made the kills secondary. It is very much at the forefront of the film. And, and again, when they serve up these kills, it is messy. I can't even imagine the cleanup after this fucking scene. You know, Roger, this this might sound funny to you, but like, I love the kills in this movie. I'm a slasher fan. I love I love the gore, the, 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 the build up to a kill. But oftentimes I forget with this film that I'm really watching a slasher film because I'm so engaged with what's going on with the characters between the, the kill scenes that sometimes when the kill scenes come, come about, you're like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a slasher film because I'm so thoroughly entertained by everything that's happening that, I mean, hell, I want to see this turned into just a strict comedy because I'd be all there for it. But um, yeah. And then they drain the, the blood being drained into this bucket as he's holding this dude's head up and the, just the throat is gashed open and the, the blood is draining into this bucket. It's pretty, pretty effective and pretty impressive honestly it must be the next day because o'hara and barry find the the body of the gogo boy already and he's drained of blood barry does make the comment is like when they pull the the sheet off barry's like wow he has great abs <laughs> there's this montage then of uh detective o'hara and barry and re- interviewing various employees of the bar they interview tragedy and they're asking her name and she says i'm tragedy and they're like yeah that's all good and well but we need to do your name for the for our report she's like i am tragedy and they they interviewed Dwayne. and they're like hey do you know this guy and they show him the picture of the the meat grinder guy he's like yeah i thought i saw him around here well he his body washed up and he was drained of blood and Dwayne's like do i need a lawyer and then they interview gloria and this is that moment where they go into her dressing room and they're like uh, G- Gloria Troll, your your colleague said we could find you back here. And she turns around. She's wearing that very glamorous black and white hat. Oh gosh, she's so elegant. I know. I love her moment here where she turns. Like I mentioned this earlier, she like she turns to the officers and she's got this like gigantic polka dot hat on, and she turns and she like busts this big smile, holding her cigarette. She's just oozing personality in every single frame. She tells them that Audrey must have a shaved asshole because Tony likes him smooth. Uh, so Tony and Audrey have slept together and Gloria's like, it's just safe to assume that Tony has slept with all his employees. In fact, I think he single-handedly gave the town syphilis. The next morning, 
Brian is uh, chatting with Dwayne. He recommends he gets a new job because it's very clear that Dwayne is just unsatisfied. Again, something we can all relate to. And it does like cut to this moment on the news where <laughs> the news reports reveal the grieving mother of the of the collegiate student that recently died, played by a drag queen. But it says it literally says in big letters, "grieving mother," and she's. Only on screen for a matter of seconds, but this woman steals the fucking show. I'll tell you this right now. I mean, this drag queen is is truly grieving. But there's also this moment where Tony goes into his office after the uh, the detectives have interviewed everybody, and Janet's sitting in his office chair. She confronts him about his business, and she's like, "Bartenders are quitting. The girls backstage are petrified. I've never done a split for an empty room, and I'm not about to start now." And he tells her like. Drag queens are like you are a dime a dozen. And she's like, keep telling yourself that pretty soon. All you'll have is a dime. And he tells her to get the fuck out of his office. I feel like, you know, Janet has no qualms confronting Tony. It seems, which is, which is cool. But like, she seems so excited that this bar may close. And I'm like, why are you excited? This is your job. Like if the bar closes, you are not going to have a job anymore, girl. What are you doing? I feel she thinks she's above that. I think she thinks that she'll just go to the next bar, you know? I don't know why she's sticking around when she seems so fucking unhappy, but I think she's got a fan base there. Oh, uh, I love the, yeah, I love these news broadcasts though. Cause you get the one where, and the, the little, the headline on the news broadcast is vampire wreaks havoc. <laughs> There's that one gay guy they interview. Who's like, it's like, you can't even go out anymore without getting killed. We didn't just get gay marriage to get murdered. And he looks into the into the camera and his face is all is all whiny and he looks like he's about ready to cry. It says concerned gay citizen underneath. <laughs> concerned gay citizen. <laughs> and what does that mother say? She's like, and I will not stop writing my blog until I get justice. And then she slowly shuts the door as she's staring at the camera. Oh my god. That very much is giving me like a hint of like sleepaway cam. Oh, I thought the same thing, Aunt you Martha. I mean? Just a hint, a hint of Aunt Martha. It's just a hint of it, but yeah, it, it's it's a really fun standout moment. It's so brief, but God, she steals the show there. Um, let's look at this next scene. You got this scene coming up here in the bathroom stall, where you finally see Dwayne get some action. And I gotta say, this guy that Dwayne's getting up on, even though he asked him to fucking party, God damn it, everybody, everybody and their fucking brothers partying, partying. But this guy's pretty fucking hot. I mean, this guy's, he's hot. He is hot. He is hot. And I'm glad you brought up the whole partying thing because I, oh, it's the one moment in the film where I'm like, oh, Dwayne, no, because, you know, Dwayne seems like a, such a, like a wholesome, you know, he has a shit together character. And oh, I wish they would not have made the choice to to have this particular scene happen because it kind of, for me, it puts a damper on that. But and it kind of goes really nowhere. I I get why it's in there, but it, I guess it was to kind of hammer the home that the idea that this is a pretty rampant problem in the gay community. Because yeah, it, it doesn't take much convincing for Dwayne to get into a stall with this guy and snort coke. And not only that, is they snort coke and then they literally start to make out, and Dwayne ends up going down on the guy. Um, and then they are apparently, or at least in Dwayne's mind, they, they seem like they're like a couple now because now they're out on the dance floor, like kissing and, and Dwayne buys the guy a drink. And when he gets the drink and turns around to go back to the guy, he sees the guy kissing this other guy. So he like throws the drink in the other guy's face. And then the guy that he 
randomly blew in the bathroom, punches them, and they get into like this fist fighting match. I wish my love affairs were that fucking like <laughs> turbulent and torrid and and f- filled with passion that you go from blowing a dude in a public bathroom to pounding their face in on a dance floor. I mean, it is a it is a sudden change, but I like that we do see also this this aspect of Dwayne where he's a little uncontrollable, like he's got a temper. He just he just swings for this guy and like it wasn't expected, you know? You wouldn't anticipate that this guy would just be fucking right hooking some dude to the jaw just after sucking his dick, but I really I like that trait in a character. I like that in a man. Yeah, yeah, um, and it, you know, it. I guess it gives us a glimpse of that. That Dwayne is also like not afraid to to throw fists when when necessary, right? Because that comes into play at the end of the film quite greatly, <laughs> yeah, very prominently. <laughs> yes, yes. We now are at Gloria's house, and she's cutting cantaloupe to make a fruit salad. Which the doorbell rings, and all these little quirks that that Gloria has is just like perfect example like she she's smoking a cigarette cutting this cantaloupe the doorbell rings her hands are covered with with cantaloupe slime but there's no towel around so she like licks her palms to clean her hands and then she goes to open the door and she opens it and it's brian uh that scene that you're talking about with uh brian telling Dwayne he should quit his job he also mentions that he is auditioning for a new part and the character is like a has-been washed up alcoholic so he is going to go ask Gloria Hole for advice on the character. So that's why he's at Gloria's home. I don't know if you caught it or not, but he introduces himself as Brian O'Hara, which O'Hara is the last name of the detective, right? So are they supposed to be related, do you think? I didn't even put that together. Yeah, he's like, hi, I'm Brian O'Hara, and you have Detective O'Hara. And I'm wondering, was, was there something maybe cut from the film that says that they were related? Former lovers, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. I like that the in- the reaction here is instantly I'm Catholic. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> Catholic. <laughs> it's such a good response. Yeah, she shuts the door on and he knocks again. And when she opens it, he has a bottle of whiskey, so she lets him in. And I like this. I like the scene. It's so funny watching Gloria Hull's facial expressions as Brian rambles on about how he understands her drag. It's a little dated, but it's what drag's all about. You're an icon. It's like one of the, you're like one of the original divas. That's what the original divas did. And she's just rolling her eyes and she's like, ah, if you can excuse me for a moment, I have to go get ready for bingo. And he's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Maybe when you come back, we can dive deeper into my character. <laughs> the, the look she gives him, uh, it cracks me up. It is so funny. Uh, but when she's in the bathroom, she goes into the bathroom to pretend that like she's she's taking a piss or something. And what she's really doing is drinking and smoking. Brian wanders upstairs into her house, which I thought was very like kind of not cool of him. Just to like go up to her upstairs and like start raiding her wardrobe. Like he takes one of her dresses, her wig. And so when she comes out into the bathroom, she sees brian in her wig and her dress and he tells her he's considered doing drag for a while and that he hates janet fitness and that maybe she could be his drag mother and you can tell she is not at all pleased by this revelation at all to the point that she (laughs) reveals something right here that i was you know on first viewing i was not anticipating to just have this handed to me as a as a plot twist at this point in the movie but i mean this is where they reveal it 
this is when they reveal it. It's still there's still quite a bit of the movie left, but this is when they reveal it because he starts. He's like, maybe I can be a singing queen, and he starts singing. You know, and 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 he, she slowly picks up a knife, and he's, he's as he's twirling around, he twirls into her, and she stabs him right in the stomach, and she looks at him, and she's like, "Bravo, bitch!" So Gloria Hole is the killer. Unexpected, but also completely expected. I mean, there's so many characters in this that to a certain extent you kind of suspect in one way shape or form but you know they were laying it on so heavy with her just being so miserable um that i guess my mind just like the again the first time i view this it didn't it didn't go there so then when you realize that they've intentionally i think been setting it this whole time just to make it clear to the viewer that oh she is definitely the killer and there's a lot more to kind of learn about that uh there's still plenty of information to take away it's not just like she's just a knife wielding maniac who's simply out to get a head count. Like there's more behind it. So I think they had to kind of introduce this aspect earlier on in order for the rest of it to have time to really be explained properly. Um, but I like this aspect of the story because it, it, again, it doesn't feel like every slasher you've ever seen. Like you said earlier, there's times you forget you're watching a slasher. And I think that's very true because it's a very character driven film. So the fact that they don't follow all of the typical beats of every other slasher we've ever seen makes this movie feel even fresher. Well, she stumbles into the living room and sits on her piano bench and takes out a cigarette from her, from her ear and lights it with a lighter from her wig. And she just starts laughing, but then she hears a door close. So she's like, fuck. And she gets up and Brian is stumbling down, down into her basement. And when he gets to the cellar doors and throws them open to get to the outside, she is standing there with her parasol. She has a parasol now. And Brian's like, you old bitch. How do you even move so fast? And she responds by kicking him in the eye with her high heel. And it's a cool, cool sequence. There's a cool shot of him falling backwards with the high heel embedded in his eye. And then when he hits the basement floor, we get that close up of, of his face with the high heel in his eyeball. Again, all the gore is super impressive. You know what else is impressive? Dwayne in those gravestone briefs. Oh, Wayne just laying there looking thick, looking those thighs looking thick and good. Good for him. Good for him. Yeah, I mean, I even messaged him. I was like, where did you get those briefs? I mean, it turns out they're a Speedo, and I can't get my hands on them, but I really like these fucking these gravestone speedos he's wearing. Well, yeah, because he wakes up, he, he notices Brian isn't home when he goes to his room to ask him for Percocets. At the bar that night, there are literally no patrons. And Janet, she's like, I told that fat fuck this would happen. And Dwayne is like, well, yeah. Uh, do you need anything before I take out the trash? And she looks at him. She's like, who are you? Again, more bitchy moments with Janet. Tony goes into his office and he is pissed that there are only 20 patrons at the bar on a Friday night. And he yells at his pup and the pup gets up and like tries to, you know, get on him and Tony pushes him back. He's like, you're only, you only want to fuck when I'm angry. You're not even a real pup. You're a mangy mutt. And the pup growls at him. And Tony says, I'm going to the bathhouse to unwind. So the pup takes his little belongings and, and leaves. And we get this moment, Roger, again, campy, campy. If the, if the film, this only works because the film is exta- has established itself with other moments of camp like this. But the scene is the pup is outside. He's in the middle of the street. Gloria's driving by looking for a, a, a twink. You know, she's like, here, twinkie, twinkie, because she needs more twink blood. 
and she literally runs over the the pup. And when she hits him, you do hear him yelp. <laughs> like a dog. Yeah. And then she smiles and she gets out and the pup is literally dead laying in the middle of the street with its intestines hanging out. Oh my God. It's such a gory reveal. Like, I mean, yes, he got ran over by a car, but like, I mean, the intestines are just spewed all over the cement. Poor, the poor pup. And he's, and he's going on a bit of an emotional journey here that you didn't anticipate. He just stormed out on his lover because he was tired of being disrespected. And he's about to cause a whole lot of emotional turmoil for Tony Two Fingers, I'll tell you that much. I mean, Tony Two Fingers dives into a depth of despair over the what is the loss of this pup. I feel for him for the rest of this film. Oh, well, you know, he is so distraught that he calls the detectives about his missing pup. And the detective, uh, Detective O'Hara is like, is he chipped? Oh my God, this dialogue. <laughs> oh yeah, it's funny. Uh, they ask, yeah, is he chipped? And then they... It's all it's revealed. Yes, he's chipped. So the um, detective tells him he needs to call the the company to get the coordinates to find out where he is. And then we find out that Tony does indeed call and find the coordinates where the pup is on River Street. And Tony's like, you know who fucking lives on River River Street? Gloria fucking hole. There's one joke here that I really want to like acknowledge that I think is actually kind of awful i mean like it's it's very self-aware this joke but like what these people are saying i would expect these people to make this comment they ask you know they're talking about this this dog being chipped but they're making all of these like canine-esque statements about this pup and then the the one officer says about last time he got away and that they had to use the chip to, to track him down and he was found in front of the Im- immigration embassy <laughs> as in like he was trying to like escape the country like troy is this like a case of of like human trafficking is this is this poor pup being kept against his will i caught that too i caught that line too yeah he was caught in front of the yeah maybe it is maybe the pup is being kept against his will and he was just trying to get back home uh yeah it's funny there's a lot of little canine jokes throughout this little dialogue too uh, like the officer Barry's like, I don't know if I should call the, should I call the, the police or the pound or something like that? But they find out through calling the, the, the company that the pup is chipped by that the pup is at Gloria Hole's house. So the officers are going to go get the pup back. Tony is like, yeah, if she's behind it, I am going to don't even, I don't even, there's not even going to be a trial for her. There's this moment where D- Dwayne has been like, trying to call Brian. He keeps getting his voicemail. So at the bar, a coworker asked Dwayne what's, what's wrong. And he's like, no, nothing's wrong. I just have a really wet, bad feeling about tonight. And the coworkers like, well, you know, Mercury, Mercury is in retrograde. And Dwayne's like, what's that supposed to mean? Oh, this new coworker that steps in is like the new best friend for a moment. Like he's, he's all of a sudden there's like this new coworker figure. That's kind of filling the placement of, Brian, it feels like for uh, in a way he's got a few little scenes with Dwayne, but other than that, I have no idea who this fucking person is. No, I have no idea. No idea. Just a new bartender. Yeah, they hired a new bartender. Gloria is in her basement and she is looking in the mirror, like pulling her skin back, kind of doing like the facelift thing with her hands. And yeah, she looks younger, um, smoking a cigarette. And then we get this moment where she gets into her bath, disrobes, and gets into the bathtub full of blood. And literally sits in it. So we got a Lady Bathory thing going on here. Just as the detectives, both um, Detective O'Hara and uh, Barry, come down her stairs and enter her basement. Uh, I love this scene. I think this is a great scene, this whole sequence. 
the the lighting is 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 great. The editing is great. The the intercutting between Glory in the bathtub, the detectives lurking through her basement, and then the drag queens performing at the outhouse. The way it intercuts between all those three with the music playing is 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 great. I mean, this whole scene is stunning. I mean, there's this moment where like Glory literally uh, um, submerges herself in the blood. And, you know, the detectives are in her basement, but then there's this moment where she like comes out of the blood of the bathtub in slow motion. And now you, you, you see that she's definitely gotten younger, has long blonde hair. Now you turned into a completely younger person. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, I agree. And that this scene is absolutely standout. Like overall in the film, this is one of the strongest moments in general. I think with what's happening, what's what's about to happen here, because they do make a rather bold choice with the character of Gloria, it, it, it pays off that this is such a strong moment. Because even the score here, oh my God, like this moment here, they they have some Jessica Harper shots. I mean, you want your Suspiria, you're going to get it. The shots on the, the detective's eyes as they're looking around the room and everything with that pink and blue lighting all over them. It just really well executed. You could tell that they had like, a, a very specific look they were going for with this, and they definitely pulled it off. Um, and it takes its time. Like, it's a very drawn-out sequence. They're creeping around this basement. Meanwhile, Gloria is realizing that they're, like, in the basement with her. So she's, like, hiding herself, covered in blood, um, in, in the darkness. And then there's a shot revealing the one detective coming around the corner, and she's just standing there, fully naked, but with the blonde wig on over her face. It's just well executed. I love the moment where you see her bloody legs and hands grab the sledgehammer. And as the detectives are walking through the basement, there's a shot of her like dragging the sledgehammer behind her uh, with the blood and everything. It's so it looks so great. Um, It's so creepy looking. But yeah, Detective Barry enters a room and she's behind the door and she immediately smashes him in the face with the sledgehammer. And again, fuck. Talk about. Every death looks fucking great. This is a gnarly looking scene. I mean, when he falls to the ground, his whole fucking jaw is smashed in and you see his like teeth and this big old gouge in his jaw. It's like, fuck, fuck. Well, and I love that they take out the cops or like the detectives in such an intense fashion because in a way they've, you know, they've been their own side story, but they've become more and more focal and so, like, you don't know exactly what they're going to do with these characters. Like, are they going to become major players? Are they going to get killed off? And they do get killed off. But, I mean, they get killed off in brutal fashion. Brutal. I mean, like, it just, it, it's extremely well done. And and the way that they, like, light this whole sequence with a really heavy contrast does the makeup even more uh, favor, I would say. Because, you know... I I don't know if they're doing this makeup themselves, if they have a, a team that came out, but whatever, they're fucking pulling it off. But they also make really good cho- choices in how they like light these sequences because it just makes everything look that much pulpier and the texture really plays uh, plays good, like a big factor in, in how shiny everything is with the gore coming out of their head and everything uh, spewing from the guy's mouth. It just looks really like, again, I keep using the term chunky, textured. Um, but yeah, like whatever choices they made with what they used for like the blood and the aftermath, the way it reads in this sequence specifically, the shadow play of it all, it just looks gruesome. Yes, because what happens is Detective O'Hara comes in and like sees his partner on the floor and he gets down to comfort him and he's visibly upset, but Gloria is behind him and smashes him in the head 
with the uh, the sledgehammer and she gets blood splattered all over her face and everything and she's loving it. But we do get the shot of the the sledgehammer literally embedded in his head and he's like gurgling and shit. And then there's a moment where she like licking the blood off of her, her fingers and stuff. It's such an impressively done scene. And yeah, the detectives go out in brutal, brutal fashion. But I love this whole sequence. It's so good. But then it dissolves into the the outhouse bar where there's now a bachelorette party at the at the bar. So we got all these bachelorettes there. And Dwayne is annoyed. The bartenders are annoyed. I mean, this whole thing about bachelorettes using, you know, gay bars has been kind of a debate in the gay community, you know, should, you know, in terms of like that a good thing should they be allowed are they invading our spaces whatever so i do like the fact that they put the scene in there because it does kind of address that in a sense yeah i mean i'll even say like i i love this moment so much that i in, in meet i have a very brief moment with a, a small group of, of bridesmaids that, or of a yeah bridesmaids that it's like very very not focal but it was definitely like okay i need to at least hat tip this moment because i think that this was so well played. It's it's one of my favorite aspects about the whole what's building up to the finale is that these girls are these fucking bystanders to what's going on and they're just they're loving it. Like they they I think they fully are aware of what's about to happen being actually like real, like an actual murder is about to happen, but they're so entranced by the performance and the showmanship of everything that they're still like <laughs> cheering along. Like I love these girls. I think they are hilarious. Each and every one of them is fucking great in this. But I do, I, I kind of, I get what they were going for with having this scene of a bunch of bachelorettes because I definitely know, I personally know a lot of gay people that gay guys that get fucking absolutely livid when they see like bachelorette parties come into a gay bar. They get fucking livid. And wasn't it like RuPaul yeah. or somebody that that came out and said that bachelorette parties have no business at a gay bar, that they're they need to stick to their own spaces, that they shouldn't use queer spaces as a as a means to like maybe I don't can't remember the word she used like mock or like it's like a it's some, a gay bar something that should be like ooh we're going to go there as a bachelor right like I can't remember the word she's but I know a lot of gay people a lot of gay guys specifically very they feel very strongly about that and I kind of they they don't go very deep into it but you can tell by like Dwayne's uh, response to them when he's like yelling at them, what kind of vodka do you want? And they're just loud and being obnoxious. So tragedy is like backstage practicing her, her routine. Looking amazing, by the way, this outfit on her looking amazing. Yeah. Dwayne asks tragedy if she's seen Tony, cause he found the pup's vest outside and tragedy kind of just ignoring him. She's like spinning this shot glass. But all of a sudden, she looks at the door and points very dramatically, almost like uh, Donald Sutherland's character in the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, that point he does. She lifts her hand and points. She's like, it's beautiful. Just as Gloria, young, voluptuous, blonde Gloria comes in. I think it's something to be acknowledged here that at this point, the actor portraying Gloria it becomes a different actor. It's a younger actor. It changes. And and. And I in no way want to say that I think that the, this other actor is not giving a good performance because actually I think they're quite fantastic. But it's definitely not the same Gloria hole that we've seen leading up to this point. 
they they do feel like two completely different people, two completely different personalities. And while young Gloria has plenty of moments that she is fucking knocking it out of the park. She, I mean, especially during the whole finale fight sequence that's coming up. I mean, really, she's hitting it. Um, I I remember like the first time I watched this, it just didn't register to me what had happened. It wasn't until I went back and noticed the whole moment of of Gloria submerging herself in the blood and coming out, and that it was in fact a different actor. Uh, the way that whole scene is filmed, the neon lighting and everything, or the you know the the bright rich colors, the heavy contrast, I really didn't even catch it at first. I didn't put it together until I went back and looked closely. I was like, oh my god, I see what's happening now. I think I was just so caught up in the execution of everything that I didn't even notice it the first time I saw this film. So I was kind of thrown off by what was happening. But like now, after subsequent viewings, coming back and knowing exactly what the storyline is that's at play, again, fresh. It doesn't feel like every slasher I've ever seen. Uh, It's playing with some completely new territory now with this whole vampire element. And I will say that this actor, while it doesn't feel like Gloria Hole, it's still a really great performance. I really like where they go with this character. Yeah, no, I, I could agree with you on that. I can agree with you on that. I do like the performance, but yeah, I could see where it does not seem like the same character. And I feel like my first viewing as well, I, I was a little bit confused, but subsequent viewings, again, you you kind of catch everything. But um, but it, it leads to some great sequences with this with this new actor because Janet Fitness comes on stage to perform her routine as Gloria sneaks under the stage. I love this whole moment too. It's very Carrie-esque, right? With Sue Snell under the stage waiting for the right moment to pull the string. And that's what we get Gloria doing here. She's under the stage. She pulls out a knife and she's just waiting for that moment for Janet to do her drop. And when she does, she shoves a knife through the crack and the knife goes right through Janet's chest. The blood sprays the Bachelorette girls who at first are like, what the fuck? But then Gloria comes out from under stage and comes out on st- on the stage and starts to perform. And so the Bachelorette girls like literally think that it's just part of the show and they're all cheering. And Gloria is performing this very aggressive, sc- aggressively screaming song. It's just like ah, screaming. That's like the whole thing, and it's it's very fitting. I mean the the the, the sound, the music, everything just really makes the the whole sequence just that much more effective. Yeah, I, I really like that this harks back to the one line earlier in the movie where Gloria said, make sure you land that death drop. Um, you know, again, they, they tie everything together really neatly, and I'm really impressed with that. Um, not a lot of loose strings left in this movie. And also Janet's complaint earlier on in the film that the cracks in the stage are too big. Yeah, yeah, it's very well thought out. Um, and, and I also think this number, I mean, oh, honestly, I think the whole finale, it just doesn't let up. I think the entire final uh, act here is, is rather breathtaking, to be honest. But this number, when she's giving these like, just like, like these shrieks, these bancy shrieks, and her face is all like contorted and just like filled with rage. This is like the right song track for this moment. Yet again, this song hits. It's perfect. Uh, Dwayne calls Tony to tell him that Janet is dead. And Tony's like, oh, I lost my pup. I have nothing. But, oh, how, how's the night at the bar been? He literally does not care that Janet's dead. And Tony and Dwayne's even like, did you not, did I not just, or did you not hear me? Janet's dead. And Tony's like, oh, big fucking loss. And he hangs up on him and he is mourning his pup. He even pours like champagne into the, or wine into the pup's water bowl and drinks out of it. 
when all of a sudden he hears a whimper, a dog whimper, and he's like, pup, is that you? So he goes out on his porch. He gets a big gift box that's wrapped, brings it in the house, opens it up. And of course, you can see where this is going. It is the pup's severed head. They're giving us a seven. They're pulling a seven, seven. at this moment. Yeah. I also really got to quick that acknowledge that Chinese food that he's eating that's just sitting on the counter there. Oh my God, it looks so fucking good. The whole scene, I was like, God, I got to order some fucking Chinese. But yeah, this scene is fun. Well, and Gloria comes into his house and knocks him out with the electric knife, the handle of the electric knife. Dwayne is freaking out. But at the, at the bar, tragedy comes out. And Dwayne's like, I think Gloria might have something to do with this. And... All tragedy does is hand him a bingo ball and it's 069, of course, wink, wink. Uh, so that obviously tells him he needs to to get to the bingo hall to figure out what's going on. And he gets an Uber and we get a very, very brief, very brief, very brief cameo with Linnea Quigley. It's out of nowhere. I mean, Linnea Quigley, she's in a car. She's an Uber driver. She's. A Paris, she appears to be drugged out of her mind, uh, blasting rock music. She's got wide eyes. She's like, oh, I'll take you there. And you never see her again. But I'm happy to have her. I'm always happy to have ally Linnea Quigley. Linnea Quigley, who was born in my hometown. Every time we mention Linnea Quigley. Oh oh, yeah, I've told you this before. Every time we, we mention Linnea Quigley, I tell you she was born in <laughs> Davenport, Iowa. Linnea, me Davenport, and I always, I'm always so impressed every time, too. Uh, I know. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but at the bingo hall, uh, Gloria has Tony tied up to a chair and gagged. The stairwell reveal sequence. Oh, all the bingo balls coming down the stairs as she starts to come oh down. Oh my god, they, these fuckers know how to set up a scene, man. Yeah, she comes down the stairs looking great, and she starts to lip sync that song that she did earlier in the film. But the the album, the record album, starts to skip. So all you hear for the rest of the film, and I think it adds so much. Like it's it's just little things like this that goddamn add such a layer to the scene where all you hear for because the album skips and it's like i remember when i remember when i remember when so it's the whole rest of the film that's what you're hearing because the album is skipping in the background so she shoves the rag back in tony's mouth and then she has this this monologue that's delivered quite well about uh, basically you know, she's been doing this since 1984. She stuck with Tony through thick times and, and hard times when the bar was raided by cops. She would go on and perform still after being busted up. Um, but then she says, you know, the community used to have a lot of heart and integrity, but you got fat and lazy while she busted her ass to get to the top. And she's like, these new drag queens, they just throw on throw on a wig and some heels on a Friday and they think they're doing drag. And all they're really doing is just pounding their their vaginas on the floor. And she tells them, don't you think that your audience is going to get bored of this Nicki Minaj type shit? Uh, She built the stage from the ground up. And you, Tony, thought I expired. But no, I'm forever. My tuck is everlasting. They could have really like let this whole final bit with this younger Gloria be a... um like a lesser than moment, a briefer moment. Like it simply comes in for the reveal and then they, and then they kill her off. But they really chose to bring this twist about with enough time to let the younger Gloria develop what is her own kind of personality. And honestly, yeah, like she's got this big old fucking monologue. She nails it. 
there's some moments of real int- real like sheer intensity that she just digs into and what's really impressive that comes up here is like this, this epic fight that's about to break out here in a moment. I mean, she gets very physical as well. So one of the perks of having now a younger antagonist, you know, focal antagonist is it, it does give you this whole level of physicality, both in her performance, her delivery of the dialogue um, and, and what's to come from that. Um, it really does kind of open it up to this whole unexpected layer of just sheer physical brutality as well well tony starts to plead with her and tells her you know, i like the fact that he's like hey glory that was a nice speech you said right there you know uh, you're right everything has changed and it, it sucks and he tells her that she can have thursdays and uh, or that she can have saturdays and thursdays back in the meantime Dwayne has gotten to this bingo hall and he's coming down the stairs but she's like no tony i'm sorry what's done is done and she literally takes the electric knife and proceeds to cut off his other fingers how cruel. I know. Now he's Tony No Fingers. But Dwayne like comes down the stairs and is like, Gloria, stop. And she's like startled. She's like, oh my God, you scared the shit out of me, Tito. <laughs> she consistently calls him Tito throughout this entire finale as well. I do want to acknowledge that. Um, and I got to say that Brandon in this moment like, is really selling those screams of agony. I mean, goddamn, like, this is a painful looking sequence. Again, it's lit right. They shot it right. You see the fingers fucking come off. It is rough to watch. It, it, he's vomiting up chunky, gory blood here in a moment. I mean, this whole sequence is just, oh, it's so fucking gnarly. And this moment to come up is really fucking impressive. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dwayne tells her, you you're, you don't have to do this. You got what you want. You're young and beautiful. And she's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> but you can't help. So stay the fuck out of my way. And then she looks at uh, Tony. She's like, Tuesday nights are for karaoke. And she proceeds to shove the electric knife into his stomach and cut his gut open so that his intestines fall out. And not only that, as she begins to like pull them out aggressively and like holding up in the air. And she's like, Oh my God, there's more. And she starts pulling more of them out. Yeah. It's, it's, whew, it's gross. It keeps going and going and going and going. And I love it. I mean, like you're just seeing blood pouring out of this now empty sack of, of gut that, that was at one point. So bloated, just like it was such a big fake gut. You knew something had to come out of it. Um, and it pays off. I mean, she's wrapping the intestines all around her arms. It's disgusting. Um, and I love that, that meanwhile, Dwayne is just on the steps, just like screaming. Like, I do love it when you have a male, a male character screaming like a woman, it just adds something to it for me. This moment is very raw and brutal. Oh, it's great. Uh, and Dwayne is like, Gloria, for fuck's sakes, what are you doing? People looked up to you. My friend, Brian, he looked up to you and she says, oh, you be Brian. She's like, oh my God, I did Providence theater, theater community a favor by killing him and Dwayne's like you you killed Brian she's like <laughs> uh, yeah I killed Brian and he's like you bitch and he literally just runs right at her and, and he's gonna beat the shit out of her but she grabs him by the throat and she's like hey you wanted to kiss Tony's ass so bad why don't you taste it and she picks up his intestine and like shoves it in Dwayne's mouth and throws him on the floor poor Dwayne this, this starts a series, a trend, in which you think that Dwayne is dead, but he is not. Dwayne, you know, you think Jason has nine lives? Fucking Dwayne. He's a black cat. He keeps coming back and back 
and back over and over. I mean, you keep thinking that she's got the best of him. Not the case. No, I mean, this this leads into our final battle, which is very impressively choreographed for a low budget film. Uh, I've you know, I, I always try to avoid elaborate stunts in films like in my films because I know like how hard it is to choreograph and to, to block and everything. Uh, you know, we had that whole scene in teacher shortages, the end in the bar that was stressing me out because it was a lot of physical movement and fighting and stuff like that. And I remember being completely stressed out about that. They pull this off and it's, I mean, I was in, I mean, for, because I know, I know how hard it is to do this as an indie filmmaker working with such a, a small crew and, and everything, but this looks great. I mean, so it goes to, she goes back upstairs to the bingo hall. She's talking to Kitty Litter's picture. All of a sudden, as she gets up, Dwayne is behind her and throws a glass at her and she turns around and she's like, Oh, Tito. You missed. And this launches into Roger, a, a battle that can single-handedly contains the most bottles being smashed on heads that I've ever seen in my life. Oh, this is a highly elaborate fight sequence. It involves these two you know, breaking glass urns, uh, bingo tickets suffocating, chairs collapsing on people. They're getting thrown into tables. I mean... Well, this is a very physical fight sequence. Kudos to both of these actors for taking this kind of a fucking ass kicking because, you know, on this level, they're just really throwing themselves around and it shows. It looks rough. Like, it looks like they literally have the wind knocked out of them after they're finished. Oh, they are. They are going at it. I mean, there's a moment when Gloria gets on top of Dwayne and she's like choking him and then he hits her with a bottle. He gets on top of her and shoves bingo papers in her mouth. Um, and she's knocks him out and then she goes to drink some champagne and he comes up behind her again and hits her. And at this moment he knocks over kitty litters ashes and she freaks out and like literally slams, this, slams him onto a fucking table. The table smashes and she, he's out again and she lights, she lights a cigarette and she's getting ready to smoke when he comes up behind her and literally hits her in the head with the urn. The ashes of kitty litter go all over her fucking face. And then he pulls this wall panel on top of her and it fucking smashes her. And we see as he, you know, as he's picks up this baby Jesus statue and goes over to her, we see that she's impaled by this giant star decoration that was hanging on the wall. You know, he raises the statue and she's like, tell, tell him glory said to go fuck themselves. And he's like, you're a monster. And she says, so was Tony. So was Janet. And I bet deep down, so are you. I love that line because it harkens back to Dwayne saying everyone was, oh, they were all monsters earlier in the film. And, you know, now you get Gloria calling him out that maybe he is actually a monster. And then she tells him to, to basically finish the, finish the number, she says. And he raises the statue and screams and then it cuts. It's abrupt, unexpected, especially because you've got this building, building, building. I mean, this fight scene keeps on going, and I can't emphasize enough just how impressive this fight scene is, especially on this level. It really is. If you want a movie that takes its finale out with a bang, this film fucking delivers in spades. One of the most built-up, hyped-up, drawn-out, but yet satisfying finales I've seen in a long fucking time. And again, to do it on this level, on this budget hats fucking off to these guys it, then it cuts to black on this really like pivot what you think is gonna be this pivotal moment and for a second it's jarring for a second you're like i don't know am i satisfied with this but i will say after again after subsequent viewings what this is building up to actually is in my opinion one of the 
the the the best and quirkiest aspects of this movie. It's it's how it ends it, the note it chooses to end it on. It, this movie has kept me on my toes the whole time, and it, ending it with this kind of note where it's going here. I love this ending. I really do. And I've revisited it and I like it so much more after watching it multiple times. Well, we cut to six months later. We find out that now Dwayne has become the manager of the outhouse bar, which is an interesting choice for him. And so we cut to this convertible and Gloria's driving down the road with someone looking at a map talking about, I can't wait to get out of this fucking town. And we hear the person say, well, we're going to need more blood eventually. And the person puts down the newspaper or puts down the map and we see that it is tragedy. Satisfying. Oh my God. The fact that these two go full Thelma and Louise and just take off together. Like I didn't know this is what I needed, but this is absolutely what I needed for these two. And, and I mean, I'll watch this fucking buddy comedy any day of the week. These two on this road trip, sign me up. They're having their fucking Beyonce and, uh, Lady Gaga telephone moment. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, before the credits start to roll, Gloria tells Tragedy, hey, you know what? If it's going to be me and you forever, I'm going to need you to lighten up. And they laugh and laugh and laugh as the car drives into the sunset. And then the um, the credits roll. But there is this post-post-credit scene or this post-credit scene where Gloria must be earlier before any of this happened. Gloria's sitting in a bar telling the bartender it's over for her. She's going to need to sell her gown and her wigs when tragedy comes at sex next to her and says, looks her in the eye and says, well, maybe it doesn't have to be pulls out a knife, slices her finger and puts it in Gloria's mouth and Gloria's response are, are you out of your tit? And then tragedy just looks at her and smiles. And that is the end of the film. So tragedy was in it all along. Yeah. You get this unique little glint to her eye when she smiles too. That was definitely, I think added in there that just makes it kind of got a supernatural kind of vibe to it. And I think it's only right that tragedy be involved because she's been such like an, uh, uh, an undercurrent of the film. She's consistently been there. She's been omnipresent throughout all of it. And to have her be so present and involved in this is very satisfying. But yeah, I mean, it's almost like a weird twisted. The ending is almost like a strange take on like, let the right one in, in a way. You know, like there's the vampire and the guardian that travels with them. Like, I almost feel like this is their like weird relationship now where she's going to be her like companion throughout all of this. And I don't know how prominent the actual like vampire element is going to play into this if she needs to keep sacrificing fucking, you know, twinks or whatever to maintain her youth. I don't know if that's something they wanted to run with beyond that, but it still has this weird kind of fantastical element to it. Well, yeah, because tragedy tells her we're going to need more blood. And we can just we're just gonna have to we're just gonna have to make the the deaths look like accidents and we just have to consider maintenance. Yeah. Uh yeah, good ending. Um yeah, I love the fact that tragedy deals get kind of get a moment here and we find out that she was really heavily um involved in everything that happened in the film. Uh good ending. Sets it up sets up for a sequel that I would love to see. I don't know if that's something they ever have planned, but like they could go a lot of different directions with with the sequel for this. But um now, overall, such a satisfying film. And guys, I know, I, I swear to God, this is a film that just you will grow to like more and more the more you watch it. 
it's a film that embraces its like flaws and its 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 quote unquote shortcomings, which I really don't think are shortcomings at all, being like the budget and so forth. No, like they they use that to their advantage. They crafted a film that was completely structured around what they had available to them and the talents they had available to them. They played to their strengths in every possible way. And I mean, again, I I, I feel this is a film that for you and I as filmmakers, it's inspiration. It's sheer inspiration to take their balls, their guts, literally, you know, uh, that these guys have and, and their willingness to just make something that is in no way conforming to the mainstream. And, and because of that, they made something that I think appeals, uh, it, overall, it appeals to the mainstream. I think that that's why this thing got on Shudder. I know it's developed a growing fan base um, for good reason. And that's why movies like this, you know, 20 years later are looked back on as, as classics. I think this film will probably uh, only become better with age and it will develop an ever-growing fan base that's going to continue to watch this thing regularly. Oh, I think I think it's has cemented its place in queer horror cinema history by far, and it's going to be recognized as one of the premier queer horror films out there. I mean, it, it's it's great. You don't have that many of them, but this one is definitely a standout one. It's 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 you know it's so it's so entertaining. Um, the fact that it is on Shutter is should tell you you know that they put a lot of uh, trust into putting that film on their platform for a reason. Yeah, and I, I mean I'll. I'll defend this film forever. It's, it's great. I, 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 like I said, I can see it becoming a comfort film for me that I just put on and, and just get immersed in and kind of forget what's going on in my life because the, I, I like to go on the journey with these characters. I mean, that's all I can say that guys, and I'm super excited that St. Drogo is getting out there because I think people that liked Dro- death drop gorgeous are going to be blown away by that. So I'm glad that they are preparing to go on a, another, uh, successful undoubtedly journey with their second film because they so richly deserve it. They're talented as hell. You know, every little detail that I noticed each time I watch this film just makes me realize how talented and, and uh, creative and what a great eye they have. And like, they have a very distinct vision for every scene and, and it's, it's just great. Um, so guys, what are your thoughts on Death Drop Gorgeous? We went long for this one, but hey, it's kicking off Pride. So we wanted to go big. So we definitely did. So let us know your thoughts on Death Drop Gorgeous. Yeah. So with that, Roger, any last thoughts? I just can't wait to see what these boys fucking do next. And I would be honored to fucking work alongside them and fucking run coffee on their sets. I mean, goddamn, just to learn from them, just to soak it up from them. You know, these are queer filmmakers I want to keep my eye on, and I think you, our listeners, should as well. If you're not familiar with them, I assure you, watch for St. Drogo. I'm convinced you're going to be impressed. Oh, definitely. And yeah, definitely. If they, Guys, if you ever need help on your third feature film, anything, hit me up. Because, yeah, I, I yeah. We're fans. We're fans. So with that, guys, we are going to call it an evening. We've gone long. Like I said, June is going to bring you some some episodes with some guest co-hosts. So keep Roger in your thoughts and and wish him well as he embarks on a, another cross-country move, but then also going into full production with meat. So keep him in your thoughts. Break a leg, Roger. You got a great cast, and I know people are excited to see what you do. Oh, thank you. God damn I'm I'm scared to hell, but after watching this movie, it filled me with a lot of 
uh, hope <laughs> and and excitement because I, I I see what these guys can do, and I I hope I can. Uh, you know, just capture a fraction of, of how fucking awesome their final product was, because truly it, it is going to go down as one of, like you said, one of the great LGBTQ horror films and just queer pieces of cinema in general of, of our time. It's it's truly impressive. And guys, if you're listening to this, we are truly huge fans. We're so excited for you and your successes. Definitely. So with that, we'll see you next week. Wish Roger a great shoot on Mead. Okay. Good night. Thank you. <laughs> Good night.